You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since everybody welcome to the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema the one podcast on the face of the planet that seems to always run into computer update problems yes that's us we are here and we are finally getting started and it's been lovely but that's too much behind the scenes info next thing you know we'll be giving out our passwords oh did i not already do that (laughs) i recorded it you just don't know it and our uh (laughs) Who knows what else we'll give away? Our favorite sandwich recipes. <laughs> I like a nice turkey club. Oh, there you go. There you go. The turkey club. Sandwiches came up on that other podcast I do. Uh, the Not a Bomb Watches There's another podcast. podcast that you do? Yeah. Not a Bomb Watches. Check it out. Not a Bomb what? Watches. Cowboy Bebop. Weekly. Hits on Saturdays. Folks, check it out. Me and Troy and Brad talking about stuff. And you came up because of the pastrami conversation. <laughs> In episode three, we all know it's a garbage meat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this starts the whole. The internet got a buzz. We got more hits on pastrami conversation <laughs> than we do on movies. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can check that out. Uh, might as well cross promote while I'm saying it. Uh, yeah, every Saturday, you'll hear Brad and Troy and I talk about um, Cowboy Bebop, the animated series. We nice. covered two episodes per episode, per episode of the show. Um, it's about an hour-long podcast. Nice little succinct short podcast. But uh, if you enjoy listening to me and you want to check out the Not A Bomb guys, I think you might dig it. And if you enjoy Cowboy Bebop, you might dig it. It's very interesting reviewing TV. I just want to say that now. It's uh, for me because film for me can, you know, story sometimes doesn't matter for me in film as much. It's very strange. It does matter, but it just doesn't matter to me as much. It just depends on the film and the filmmaker, right? But mm-hmm. TV shows, I feel like they have to almost have story. They really don't have a choice because you're asking people to tune in weekly. So it's a little different, I got to say. Uh, that's all I'll say. But yeah, check those guys out and me. And I hope you enjoy it. Now, let's get into uh, some stuff. I think we got some voicemail, Todd. 
Um, Walt actually not sent a me. not from you, no. Um, Walt actually sent one voicemail that. Uh, so the way we record, we re- tend to record a couple episodes ahead and things like that. So Walt sent a voicemail the other day titled "I swear I'm only calling once a week," <laughs> which. <laughs> Yeah, Walt, I, we understand. It's just sometimes the way we record. So I'll save one of your voicemails for the next show. <laughs> so that way you don't feel like you're... Uh, but you are the only one calling right now, Walt, and we love you for it. Mm-hmm. So please, don't refrain from uh, calling uh, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. And anybody can call us, Todd. If they just go over to Anchor, uh-huh. they just sign up mm-hmm. over there for an anchor.fm account. Is it, is it account. for free? It is for free. There you go. You just sign up over there for Anchor.fm. Come on, you sign up for a million other things. We all know this you. Is true. We all know you do. Um, sign up over there, and uh, you that can just... seven-day trial of browsers ain't going to cancel itself. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you really got to abuse the hell out of that seven-day trial. <laughs> well, amongst other things, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it's I mean, bad you're, you're getting black and blue you, in places. That... You really got to get in the mood uh, for that. <laughs> Because you really got to tear into it. Um, speaking of pastrami, the right. uh, the uh, the great thing about uh, for us about over there is that you know the voicemails are limited to a minute, and it might sound like we're limiting you, but there's a reason for that. Uh, we were going to do that anyway, uh, even if we did a phone number again. But you can also call from your laptop. You can call from your desktop. You can call from your phone, your uh, iPad. All you got to do is have the Anchor FM app on your uh, phone or anything, and uh, you can reach out to us very easily. Uh, but, you, again, you just got to sign up. It's really that easy. I know it sounds laborious, but trust me, it's not. All right, let's see what Walt has to say about uh, one of our episodes. Again, we didn't listen to any of this, so uh, he could hit us with a uh, metaphysical question again or a, uh, a pondering of the universe. So I hope you're awake and ready. So here we go. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. Gentlemen, it's Walt the Egg. Hard-boiled, but also slightly cracked. Uh, Rip (laughs) Sonny Chiba. Um, Now, the question about uh, my uh, last film that I would be able to watch. Uh, This is a difficult question because I always said that I don't have a favorite single movie. I have uh, many favorite movies. And as I stare into that abyss... Do I want something uh, transcendent like uh, 2001 or do I want something that expresses the mystery and pain of human alienation like Eraserhead? For me, it's neither. Uh, I really have to affirm the ultimate silliness of our entire enterprise. A film where winning is less important than sticking it to the other guy. Uh, Getting back to where it all began, it's just childhood. The stakes are low. Uh, One of my personal favorites, a film that expresses my attitude toward authority, uh, I'm going to go with Bad News Bears. Well, that's not a bad choice at all, is it? No, it's not, although I will say this. I heard about half of that. Oh, um, did you? Nice. <laughs> yeah, I didn't hear the first half. But uh, Bad News Bears, yes. I mean, great, 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 great. So much fun movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's actually one of my favorite films as well. So he, one of the things he said about uh, that I found interesting was the favorite movies thing. I want to I want to bring this up real quick. Uh, he talked about last films he would be able to watch. For the end mm-hmm. of the universe is what he basically talked about in that first part. You mm-hmm. didn't hear, and he thought maybe would it be something. Tra- I don't know if you heard this or not, but would it be something transcendent like two thousand one, or something that would question human existence? 
And in his opinion, he said Eraserhead, which, you know, uh, those are very interesting films and stuff. Uh, so my son is, you know, he's really getting into movies and his taste varies very much like mine. Uh, he seems to like musicals a lot, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so he likes that kind of stuff. And I, he asked me all the time, he'll ask me lots of times, what's your favorite movie you've seen this year? What's your favorite movie of all time? What's your favorite movie if this? And I often think to myself, you know what, as I've gotten older, I really, I mean, I have my, I have my favorites. I think we all do, but I really don't, I love movies and film. You know, I love it so much that there's not really favorites for me anymore. I just, yeah. I just, I love the experience. Yep. So I don't really have favorites anymore. I mean, I'm sure I could sit here and tell you a thousand times that, you know, I still think American World from London is one of the greatest horror movies of all time. And uh, Well, the problem is you could sit here and rattle off like a 10 million. movies yeah. Yeah, at any given time, at any given point, and then, and then an hour later rattle off another 10. Yes. And that's that, that that's what it comes down to. I mean, if I had to watch one last film, I mean, American War of London is not a bad one for me. No, uh, no, I love I love that movie and have loved it since I was a kid. It's got everything I love in it: uh, creature effects, uh, dash of comedy. Um, uh, I think a an interesting uh, falling in love, meet cute relationship, and uh, John Landis's bizarre sense of always trying to get breast into films, mm. <laughs> which he he there for a while. It seems like he uh, he definitely took over the Roger Corman way of you know boob sells movies, you know. So, <laughs> but I mean, it would be hard for me to pick any. I mean, I think if the universe is ending, I don't know Kubrick would be the one I'd watch because I'd be like, man, the universe is going to end in like two hours, but this guy's uh, you know, he's shooting everything. I mean, I wouldn't care about any kind of symmetry <laughs> or or uh, moving camera or anything like that. <laughs> It'd probably be more simple. It'd probably be, you know, if the universe is ending and all I had to do, and all the only, of course, we all know that we probably wouldn't be sitting around watching movies, but, you know, it would probably be something more bubblegum than anything else. You know, it'd probably be something just completely off the wall if that's the only choice I had. Like, you're going to watch a movie. That's the last thing you get to do. What are you going to do? I'm mean, like, I don't know. Well, yeah, I think that most people, if, if given the option, uh, are not going to go with, uh, you know, a steak for their last meal. They're going to go with dessert. Yeah. Yeah. You can make the argument that if you get a chance to watch one last movie before you go, you'd want to watch the longest movie possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's not gonna, that's not going to actually lengthen the, <laughs> how long yeah. until you're dead. <laughs> yeah. So who knows? You'll just, you'll just die in the middle of it. One of the great things about Walt is he's always sending us these questions that uh, make our brains hurt. And I don't know if Walt, Walt probably doesn't know, and maybe a lot of people don't know. But we, again, I've said it before in the past, we get up really early to record this show uh, due to scheduling. And I have small kids and, and all these things. Uh, Todd just chooses to do it for whatever reason, uh, basically to help me, I think, uh, which is very honorous of todd and, and i really appreciate that is honorous a word uh anyway, no uh honorary of todd is Honor- the word. honorable <laughs> yeah honorable of todd would maybe be a better word but honorary may have been the word i was looking for more like ornery i think that somewhere between you yeah yeah ornery is uh i think the way it's actually spelled but <laughs> down here in the <laughs> south we say honorary don't be honorary todd um but he, he helps me out quite a bit and stuff and i want to you know Thank Todd for that publicly because I oh, stop. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I know that uh, he doesn't always feel in the mood to do it sometimes, and he doesn't have to, but he's always been there for me and for Will, and uh, we appreciate that. We've always appreciated that, so thank you, Todd. Much appreciated. Well, you're welcome. No, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, I haven't talked about anything we're covering this week, but I'll do no. that. I'll do that now. Uh, the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T this week, nineteen fifty-three, uh, directed by Roy Roland, uh, with some possible ghost directing credit in there. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And Runaway, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Michael Crichton. So very uh, diverse, I would say, show this week. They're about as wide apart as it's possible to be yeah i don't know if you could get much more further apart than the only, well i mean if one of them was maybe a, a snuff porn <laughs> well i mean it would be about the only other thing that i could think of that would well, make a greater divide between two movies we'll do deep throat and song of the south next week how about that all right let's do it <laughs> I'm up for it. yeah definitely lead to interesting conversation there's no doubt about that uh, i've been wanting to do song of the south for a long time we might do that at some i know point. <laughs> i've been bringing that up for years that one and that is that is the uh, that is the final bullet in the gun. Yeah, that has always been a hot topic one, and then of course uh, coonskin, which is one to- uh, Will and yeah. I have been wanting to do for a long time, and we've always kind of pushed it aside, not because of what you think, not the reason you think, because you know I think commenting on art doesn't have anything to do with uh, you know your actual feelings of something controversial, but not necessarily. I enjoy the conversation that tends to stem from you know, religious allegories and uh, racial divide films and things like that. And films that are maybe just, maybe were just ill-conceived. Those are some of my favorite movies. <laughs> maybe. maybe. And okay, let's get into what we've been watching. You watch anything over the last week or so? If you want to save anything, Todd, you can. But just All right. I got a couple of things here. Uh, so uh, the Weekly Crimmy, uh, The Trigon Factor from 1966, directed by Cyril Frankel. Really like that um, title. like that title. Right? Uh, yeah. I think it has a couple. It might have another title or two, uh, including one involving the White Nuns. Really, um, It really sounds like a Teen Titans Deathstroke crossover. Right? <laughs> I was hoping for it, and I was like, oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Or is he that they big, always have those titles. That guy with the yeah. antlers and DC always does when they do that crossover, and they do that crossover between Deathstroke and Titans a lot. Yes, they, they do. It's like the Lazarus Factor, or you know, <laughs> it's, it's always something like that, you know. Yeah, or the something paradox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is uh, for better or worse, not that. Although it was very very fun. Uh, this one was. It's still uh, produced by the folks at Rialto Films. Uh, but much less German. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that um, my man, Eddie, uh, is pretty much the only transfer over from Deutschland uh, in this one in a very small role. Uh, and this one also looks like it was mainly shot in jolly old England as well, uh, where just about all of the uh, Edgar Wallace uh, books that they adapted in the first place are set. Um, still in all, this one's uh, it's pretty wild. It's uh, you know It's got a nice uh, central heist element and some real wild... Uh, nunnery goings on, uh, as I mentioned with the, uh, the white nuns, uh, title. Um, and this one also has uh, a fairly straight up kind of a giallo murderer, uh, kind of element thrown in as well with this, uh, you know, person running around in all black with one of those creepy, like semi-transparent masks. Uh, and of course, you know, black leather gloves. Uh, but yeah, no, this one, uh, I had a lot of fun with it. I wasn't expecting to, because usually, uh, when they start to, uh, 
lean more into the English uh, speaking side of things. They tend to get a little drier, uh, in my opinion. But this one was uh, this one was uh, up there. It's up there for me. Uh, did a rewatch of Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, from 2018, directed by Peyton Reed. Um, you know, I, 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 say what you will about uh, about Marvel movies, uh, but you know, I, I myself uh, really enjoy the living shit out of the Ant-Man uh, pictures. Uh, they're you know really light. They're all about adventure, uh, and I think that they use the uh, the characters' powers in in interesting ways, uh, both both uh, visually and like in a practical sort of uh, narrative uh, or uh, I don't know choreographed sort of sense, uh, for want of a better term. Uh, I do think that Walton Goggins here is essentially wasted, um, and Michelle Pfeiffer is uh, basically not only the MacGuffin of the movie, but she's also the Deus Ex Machina. Um, she always which, feels like when know, she pops up in something, sometimes she just does it to renew her benefits or something. <laughs> well, I think she, did, yeah, just to get to the uh, the old folks' home. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As for SAG, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I, I love her, and we we've talked about her. We talked about her with the Batman uh, Returns episode. And I mean, she's yeah, a great, yeah, she's yeah. a great actress, but oh yeah, she's very selective. I'll give her that. Well, thank God, though. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, at least yeah. uh, at least she's smart enough not to just 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 do uh, absolute garbage. It's true. Um, it's true. But uh, but yeah, no, this movie was uh, it, it's overall fun, uh, and it made me remember uh, how much I legit like uh, the Partridge Family because they use the uh, the song there. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, come on, get happy. I really uh, like the uh, the female henchman in that film. She's really striking. Ghost, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, ghost, the ghost character, yeah, but that actress, really, yes, yeah, really, really uh, liked her. Amazing set of eyes. Yeah, amazing set of eyes and a great screen presence. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, she really does. Mm. Um, and you know, I was thinking about this because I was watching uh, the What If cartoon. Uh, oh yes. Plus, yeah. uh, third episode was really good, by the way. Yeah, yeah, um, probably the best episode of the run so far. Uh, so far, yes. Um, and I was, I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, I really don't like the style uh, of this animation uh, uh, myself. Yes, 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 yes. But uh, I, I started to think about, you know. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, but I started to think about, you know, uh, how everybody always complains about the style of the Marvel movies. And I started to think, well, you know, I, I don't really get that complaint seen as how it's really no different than any other massive 200 plus million dollar movies style is these days no, so no. I, I don't get i don't really get why these guys are picked on more than anything else seeing as how i mean if you want to talk about because they're on top not meant to be taken <laughs> yeah. all that seriously yeah why would you you would look first at a comic book movie yeah um uh, but i i just i don't get why they get picked on like that but they do um probably because they're on top like i said i mean i, I, I think well that could be that that very well could be it yeah you're uh, all you're always not you but you know what i mean you society is always, yeah. Society is always trying to topple the the giant. It's it's True. always, you know. I mean, if if if, but then they shouldn't have put them up there, should they? No, they shouldn't have. But uh, that is That's uh, a weird dichotomy of people, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it, it's been going on since uh, I think we've been aware of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at least since Rome. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's been <laughs> at two, Toddy. At two. <laughs> Beware of the eyes of God. Uh, or the Tods of March. Um, <laughs> oh, the Tods of March. That sounds uh, sounds like a good name for a band. I was like just going to say, that's change, my fucking metal band Yeah, name. change my name to Todd, and we're the Tods of March. 
<laughs> Let's do it. Uh, that'll be your third podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there you go. So, yeah, so uh, so Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah, no, I, I dig this one. I dig this one a good deal. It was good. Me and my uh, son, I remember me and my son. Was. Uh, it was really nice yeah. as well. Yeah, we liked it. We uh, we enjoyed it. I probably, honestly, I probably liked Ant-Man and Wasp more than I liked Ant-Man. Uh, a little bit more, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, because, I mean, that's kind of the hurdle of, of all origin movies, though, right? Mm-hmm. Is kind of that they, they don't really hold yeah. up as well as yeah. uh, the sequels do once they've established all their, their uh, formals, mm-hmm. their bona fides. Or yes. bona fides, as they say. Yeah. So, uh, moved on from that to a little movie. Uh, you know, I, I just shifted gears slightly uh, to uh, the cars that ate Paris uh, from 1974. Huh. Oh yeah, this uh, is a, this is that Disney movie, right? This is a, uh, Lightning yeah, McQueen. Was, well, no, this was HBO Max. This was Warner Brothers. <laughs> okay. Uh, this was uh, Peter Weir uh, directing. So, here's the thing. Uh, you know, America has cannibal hillbillies uh, in its rural wastelands, right? Oh, yeah. But Australia has motor fetishists, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here they basically act the same, uh, tearing into, like, wrecked cars like uh, like an inbred would tear into, like, a horny teenager. Yeah. Um, but this movie – this is a movie that I think would be just simply bizarre and completely unbelievable if it were made in any other country. Uh, and it's still that. I mean, it's still really just – kind of head-scratchingly odd. Um, but I think that it just feels much more at home with its oddness mm-hmm. uh, coming mm-hmm. from uh, from Australia. I mean, I love, uh, I love like, the this, like, darkly sly subversiveness that uh, Weir um, slaps all over this thing. Yeah. Um, but it does, it does kind of bring up the question of, of why, why Australia was so obsessed with, uh, with automobiles and the way that they filmed them. You know, this... Uh, the Mad Max films, Dead End Drive-In, uh, yeah. so on and so yeah, forth. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I started to think about, you know, is it because there's so much area on the continent and the car is like a quick way of exploring it? Or is it the thrill of like speed and danger? Or And then, you know, I kind of like thought, I kind of sat back and thought about it a little bit more because, I mean, at this point in time also, you know, maybe I was just being kind of selective about, about this because, you know, America certainly had a car obsession as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that was something that really took off in the 70s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. But, you know, there, there seems to be a real sort of, like, almost sexualization of cars that yeah. uh, that America doesn't... Like, America is like, kind of just got a rod on for explosions and blowing shit up. But, but Australians really seem to have, a, like, this sort of... Uh, like, I mean, the best word is I can think, I can think of is sexualization, where they, they they almost like want to be fucking the car with their cameras. Yeah, yeah, it's very it's uh-huh. a very interesting aspect, and I've always thought that. I mean, I, the not, not quite Hollywood documentary kind of nails that a little bit too about yeah, their kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. their love of car mayhem is. I mean, it's almost like our love of uh, uh, people interaction or seventies grindhouse nudity. It's very, mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something. Or something I don't know about it. Some type of objectivity that uh, I've never really been able to kind of put my hand on or totally understand. And it's not like the cars are gorgeous cars either. They're usually some no. type of Frankenstein creation yep. when you think yep. about the Mad Max films. And then if they're not, they're usually typically just a regular car. But even when Americans would go over to Australia and make a movie, cars became a thing. It's like uh, I think they just took pride in it. Uh, that's all I can think right now. But Somebody ought to really do a deep thesis on that, a deep paper on that, or there, a deep there essay. There has to be something written about yeah. it. it. Has to be. Yeah. But, but it, I, I have yet to come across something decent in that regard. Yeah. 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 
But you know, Aussie filmmakers, you know, they 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 really have a knack for uh, for making the odd seem commonplace and vice versa. And I think I don't think that uh, Weir is really an exception to that. No, um, great filmmaker, so, Peter Weir. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's uh, he's definitely one that um, that a lot of folks uh, don't really talk about as yeah. much as I think they should. Yeah, he gets overlooked uh, a lot. I don't know why. He's kind of like the David Lynch of uh, of Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, in a way. I mean, even his American films are pretty great. I, I, he he uh he oh he gets overlooked quite a bit. I don't I don't know why. I think he does. Yeah. I I have no idea. But I mean, this uh, picnic and hanging rock, the last wave. Uh, I mean, the guy's got uh, got you know talent to burn. Yeah. Um. So, but but by that same token, then I mean, this film is absolutely not for everyone. <laughs> uh, and yeah. its pacing and development feels like it, it kind of feels like a. a, a it, it, you know, it, it feels like a secret that it, it doesn't totally want to give up to the viewer. Uh, and I think part of uh, the the difficulty that some folks may get out of this, I think, stems from uh, having a, a protagonist who's really ineffectual and not all that compelling. Uh, I mean, you're much more concerned uh, or, or are uh, uh, focused on the, the ancillary characters, especially the... Uh, the mayor of the of Paris, uh, right. who was played by uh, oh my god, I can't think of his name, John. I think it was John Malin. Uh, he was the guy. He was a uh, Crocodile Dundee's buddy in the Crocodile Dundee. Oh, uh, I can't think of his name off the top yeah. of my head. Damn it! Uh, regardless, I know that actor um, though. I know who you're talking about. Right, right, but he does a fantastic uh, sort of really dry, uh, stoic uh, performance uh, all through the movie. Um, but you know, I, I think that, you know, for as difficult as I think some people may find this movie, I don't think, um, that you can say that there's another movie like it, like anywhere, yeah. uh, yeah. on planet earth. Uh, and I think that, that kind of counts for a lot too. Yeah. So I'm, a, um, I'm, I'll say this and I guess we'll move on from this film. The, sure, sure. that film, it, it's got cult title written all, I mean, it's got cult written all over it from the title. Yes, it does. To what it is yeah. but it's one of those weird ones that people as much of a cult film as it is it like disappears for like five or ten years all the time and then it pops back yeah. up and then it'll go away again for a while and then it pops back up it's always this film that seems to get rediscovered mm-hmm. and uh, i find that very interesting I, I don't know if it's because people's grasp on the material might be you know like we're talking about here i mean maybe maybe it, there's no way to really kind of grasp it too deeply or too thoroughly but it's an, an interesting film because it goes it's it tends to go away for a while and then it'll come back up and uh I, you know cult films typically kind of hang around the ether all the time especially amongst film uh, film buffs but that one kind of goes away i've always kind of found that fascinating that one people never really talk about it like they do rocky horror picture show or any number of films deep throat for christ's sake anything mm-hmm. Um, those films seem to always kind of be hanging around the ether, uh, but this this one goes away, and then people will bring it up, and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, that's Peter Weir, isn't it?" So, <laughs> in a way, Picnic and Hanging Rock's that way too. So, uh, oh my God, very much, and and Picnic and Hanging Rock even more impenetrable, just because it does it really, really, really doesn't want to give up uh, any of its secrets. No, it doesn't explain because uh, the whole also. movie is built on yeah uh, on that. Yeah. Um, Both of those films, though, I agree. You either like them, and they're or they're, and or you just flat out say they're they're not for everybody. No, 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 no. Kind of like a racer head for that matter. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and uh, you know what? I think that's going to be it for me this week. Okay, cool. Um, I watched a few things. I don't know. I don't recall. Did I talk about? 
Seven Men From Now last week. The uh, Bud Bettiger, uh Randolph Scott Western. I don't remember. I don't think I did. Anyway, I watched a couple of Bud Bedecker. Uh, they're on the Criterion channel now. Uh, I saw you did that in the Tall T. Yeah, yeah, the Tall T. So I love these Westerns quite a bit. I'll just talk about both of them back to back here. I love okay. these Westerns quite a bit. One of the reasons why is because they are pure American Westerns. They are good guy versus bad guy. It's a very simple premise. They are all under 80 minutes long, and there is nothing fancy about them. They are purely American Westerns dealing with American mythos. Um, some people might did that very well. Yeah, he did. He, so he had a run of these low budget Westerns that he did with Randolph Scott and Randolph Scott to me is even more for me growing up. He's even more synonymous with the American Western than perhaps John Wayne is. John Wayne was such a huge star that everybody always thinks of him when they think of the American Western, Mm -hmm. but he would do other things, right? He would kind of mix it up every now and then, or you try, he would tend to always come back to the Western, but he would try. Uh, for me, Randolph Scott, he did a lot of other things as well, but he had a great face, kind of a weird delivery. What are you talking about there, son? You know, and just kind of, kind of a weird kind of delivery he had there. Oh, there, Jimmy, settle down. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and well, that's cause he had that lantern jaw. Yeah. And he's got this great face, but these Westerns are very simple. Now, one of the great things about the Bud Bedecker, uh, Randolph Scott, westerns is that i think there's three or four of them that definitely have really fun performances from some of our favorite character actors so seven men from now has a really great uh, lee marvin bad guy performance in it where he wears a green a green ascot green scarf around his neck he's amazing in this movie yeah. uh so shades of liberty valance yeah yeah it's it's great it's great it's another one of those great uh, lee marvin sexual slash whatever he's doing on screen that makes you're like what is he doing <laughs> <laughs> he's always, you know, it's almost like he's, he's almost like pre-William Smith, Lee Marvin. When I think about okay, him sometimes, yeah, 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 yeah. He's very much that way, very masculine. Very, there's always that threat of mm-hmm. of violence with Lee Marvin, and then uh, the Tall T, which has a great bad guy performance in a different way from uh, Richard Boone, one of our favorite character actors as well, but nice. also has the amazing Henry Silva performance in it, where he plays a slightly maybe a badly named character but the time but he's uh, maybe of asian descent and they call him chink in the movie um he from the get-go though that's 1957 and you can see henry silva is going to be right there i mean this is early silva so you can see though he has a presence that's kind of like where does it where's this guy coming from this mm-hmm. you know this this kind of i don't know it it, it just has a special screen presence and him and Richard Boone against uh, Randolph Scott. It's pretty great. And uh, Mia Farrow's uh, mom's in there, too. I can't remember her name now. Marine something O'Sullivan. No, maybe O'Sullivan. I can't remember. Anyway, both those films, I'll just say, check them out. They're pretty great. Um, I had a lot of fun with them. They're, again, they're short westerns. They're not camera fancy or nothing like that. But they're really good examples of expediency and effective editing and moving story right um and i think that's why if anybody ever wonders why you hear the name bud bedeker and you know the these renowned westerns is what they were called if you ever wonder why you hear about them is because they are sleek they're just real short simple but well there's studies and efficiency yeah they're almost they're almost perfect in every way now i wouldn't give them five out of fives but they would be close in a lot of ways especially these two the tall t and uh, Seven Men From Now. These are two of my favorites. 
Um, going to watch, try to watch the rest of them before they get off of Criterion because the transfers, the HD transfers on the Criterion channel are really nice. Nice. Uh, cool. So check them out if you uh, get some time. And again, they won't take up much of your time. Um, checked out Free Guy with my son at the movies. This is oh, okay. pretty much what you think it is. Um, you know, you were kind of talking about the Marvel movies and how they're going to get the. I mean, this movie looks exactly like a Marvel movie. It doesn't look any different. Uh, it's fine. Uh, it, it, it really doesn't. I don't even know if it knows what it wants to be for the first two thirds of it. Um, but it is what you think it would be. Uh, Ryan Reynolds making uh, puns, uh, general silliness. Um, I will say Jodie Comer is pretty amazing in this movie. She's really a highlight. She really steals every scene she's in. Uh, she's the female lead in the film. Um, and Taka Watiti, he's in here as uh, nice. the main heavy. And uh, he is brilliantly funny, as only he can be. He has a certain sense of comedy that him and Jermaine Clement both, there's some dry wit there that's uncanny. Yeah, that's, that, well, that's that kind of New Zealander. Yeah, they can make the most mundane line hilarious. Yes, yes, so. they can indeed. <laughs> so it's it's very very interesting. He's fun, but the end of this movie was quite a bit of fun. It, it's one of those movies where I didn't really care for it most of the way through, but by the time it gets to the end, it goes so kind of bonkers that I had to giggle. Uh, and so I, I did like the ending of this movie. So it's a weird situation. Usually I kind of like the front end or something of a movie and stuff, but I didn't really... I got to be honest with you. I was tuning out sometimes. I was just like, oh, but my son had a good time with it. And, you know, it's more aimed at his age group than it is mine. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it was okay. I, not, I didn't love it, but yeah, you know, it's right down the middle. It's middle of the road. That's the best way to put it. All right. We'll save some of the other stuff I watch for the next recording. Um, we're going to take a short break. I come back and talk some 5,000 fingers of uh, Dr. T. Very interested to hear your thoughts on this film. Uh, we will be back right after this. song about uh being paranoid and insecure there we <laughs> when you're in love with a beautiful woman todd watch your friends well that's me to the bone uh, yeah <laughs> paranoid delusions uh it's a very healthy relationship song a little dr hook there maybe maybe the best band with an eye patch involved maybe <laughs> i mean it's uh there, there may be a couple i think the gap band at some point wore an eye patch so there, there's an argument you know there's, there's been some eye patches throughout rock history hasn't there uh yes yeah and uh wasn't um slick rick oh yeah slick rick wore an eye patch that's right or an eye patch right? yep that's right 
So there we go. Eye patches and um, and music. That's uh, that's what we're here for this week. Anyway, in- <laughs> at least let's, let's, I don't know what we're here for. <laughs> anyway, the five thousand fingers. That's a question of existence on this planet. Yeah. Uh, the five thousand fingers of Dr. Buddy, it ain't T. getting solved on this show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, rated G here. We got to. We like to do these every. I, well, I like to do these every now and then. I certainly. Uh, I think in the past we've you've probably picked a couple as well. But these films from some of these films from the fifties and the forties and stuff, they pretty much have a G rating. Uh, they try to sometimes anyway. Um, that was obviously a very popular rating back in the day. Uh, you know, get general audiences in, especially. For kids movies it seems like kids movies nowadays are almost always pg or pg-13 whereas before uh especially for our generation uh, the little g was the famous rating i would say you don't see it very often anymore you just see it very rarely now uh yeah i can't think of uh christ i can't uh, think of the last movie that there's been there's had to have been a handful i'm sure there has to be but i can't think of them yeah um a young boy dreams that he is in an imaginary world where assisted by his family's plumber he must save other piano playing kids like himself from the dungeons of his di- dictatorial. Watch out, that's a big word this morning. Piano teacher, who also <laughs> oh, just getting warmed up. Who also mind controls his mother. Um, this is directed by Roy Rowland, uh, with maybe perhaps some ghost directing from the producer of the film. Uh, there's been some rumors that him and Roy Rowland didn't get along. Uh, direct uh, stars Peter Lynn Hayes, Mary Healy. Uh, the young man is uh, Timothy Redding, I believe, or Tommy Redding, who I believe worked in, on a Lassie movie or Lassie films, maybe even the TV show. Hmm. But this one uh, also has a pretty fun uh, villain performance from Hans Conried, who uh, you guys will know if we're not telling you this. You would know if you watched this movie is the voice of uh, Captain Hook, which is why we played Dr. Hook. Get it? Uh, we're quite savvy here at the GG team. So. <sighs> we sure are. <laughs> So this one uh, also, I should say, for trivia, so this one's kind of uh, conceived and the screenplay is written by, originally, Dr. Seuss, yes. Theodore Giesel. Ooh, so. Yes. So uh, this is kind of an early attempt to him at getting into cinema. And uh, the film was very inspired by that, um, mm-hmm. to put it lightly. Uh, <laughs> and that's me not putting it not too lightly. I mean, uh, the minute you see this, you'll think, oh, Dr. Seuss. It, it, it screams that. But uh, let's get into it a little bit. Let's talk about it. This is also a musical. I want to warn people of that because I know some people don't like musicals, especially musicals from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. This is definitely a 50s musical. So It is. Uh, although I would also say that, you know, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite um, – the, 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 the musical interludes are, are fairly short. Yeah, they are. Uh, so, I mean, if, if you know, you're not going to really get like – set pieces except for like i think maybe two uh examples in this thing one of which is actually really impressive yeah um but regardless i mean this movie is uh you know jumping in here it's very much uh this is very much nightmare fuel uh filtered through you know the mind of uh, uh theodore geisel yeah um and it's and in that way i started to think about it as soon as i, I put it on not not just uh between the uh, the sort of art direction, uh, but the use of Technicolor, um, I, I instantly thought of uh, of Invaders from Mars, mm. uh, the original Invaders from Mars, uh, and I also thought of uh, Godzilla's Revenge. 
<laughs> where this boy kind of lives in this fantasy land. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, because he's trying to escape from uh, from reality in a way. Um, but the movie is also very basic in that it's simply, you know, it takes something that many ch- children hate, uh, you know, being forced to, to do shit that they're absolutely not interested in. Right. Uh, and just amplifying it. You know, because the mom character, the Mary Healy uh, character, believes that, uh, you know, Bart playing the piano is good for him. Right. Uh, but as we all know, uh, anything that adults say is good for us either really isn't or just sucks, like, you know, playing <laughs> piano or broccoli or, you know, all of these things. Yeah, so it immediately kind of grabs most kids, right? Because there's sure. always yeah. something we do as children that our parents would like us to do. Maybe not force yeah. us, but let's. it's not much different than being forced. No, no, but it's it's, it's certainly usually some type of activity that'll keep you away from getting in trouble, mischief. Yes, yes. and it's or usually with a slingshot hanging out of your back yeah, pocket or whatever. Yeah, it's usually some mundane thing or something that couldn't be more safe in some ways. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And kids, uh, and kids rebel, so I think we can all relate to that. Yeah, yeah, uh, and you know, there's no actor quite as good. Uh, as being both truly menacing and truly overblown as Hans Conried yeah. uh, was, uh, you know, between these, his, uh, you know, he had these really sharp features and he, he always did these really sharp gestures and he had that absolutely precise, unforgettable voice. Uh, I mean, the guy is just an actor that you simply can't forget for better or worse. And I think that he really, he really, really plays it to the hilt here right. uh, because he's doing this, uh, this authoritarian, egomaniacal uh, sort of character. Uh, which, you know, authoritarian, egomaniacal may actually be a redundant statement, but regardless. Um, but it's also clear that, you know, while he may love music in and of itself, he's he's a purist about it uh, to the point of robbing it of any of the fun uh, that it uh, that music has or is supposed to have. Um, so we get the, the motto in the movie of practice makes perfect. That's what he keeps hammering home, hammering home, hammering home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the point I think, well, part of the point is that, you know, simply being perfect uh, shouldn't necessarily be the point of any creative endeavor. And imperfection is, in fact, uh, what makes things uh, interesting in the first place. Um, you know, hence uh, my uh, my dislike of, um, you know, perfect things. But that's, you know, a whole other conversation. Uh, and I also find it kind of funny in that regard because you know i'm sure everyone working on this thing practiced a hell of a lot uh to produce it so uh i kind of found that kind of interesting just as a kind of uh i don't know metatextual sort of thing i don't yeah. know regardless uh so yeah you get the uh, you get the plumber versus the piano teacher uh in this movie you know dr t terwilliker uh conreed is you know he's, he's perfection and and high society and, uh, and and intellectualism while august the uh the plumber is the uh the working man uh who of course is the right man for the job of being bart's dad uh even though he's not rich and you know works with his hands and uh, is very down to earth in his thoughts and his opinions. Um, but the, the plumber character is also pretty ambivalent, uh, about the idea of being, uh, um, the, uh, the father of, uh, the boy, what was the, what was the boy's name again? Damn, Bart, uh, Bart. Bart's dad. Yeah. Bartholomew. Um, Bartholomew, Bartholomew Cuppins. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> uh, yet, uh, but what, but what he, he has, what, what the August character has, unlike, uh, Dr. T, uh, is imagination and freedom. Uh, which is why, you know, it's a bonding moment when uh, he pretends that he's fishing with Bart, which is something that Dr. T would never, you know, even conceive of to do. Uh, and certainly wouldn't uh, indulge in if he did. Um, which brings me to the uh, the Mary Healy character herself. 
uh, because she is pretty much the object of desire for all three of the male characters in this movie, uh, yes. and just in, in slightly different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for uh, for August, uh, she's romance. For Bart, she's a mom. Uh, for Terwilliker, she's a trophy, uh, and she's also for him. I, I think a complete symbol of uh, of his domination. Um, and of course, you know, she doesn't have any agency in the movie. Uh, she's just pushed and pulled and manipulated between these three guys. Uh, and I think there's some interesting psychological stuff going on, uh, in all these regards, but it also adds a certain subversive sort of insidious quality to the movie. Yeah. Uh, I do, however, I will say this about that. I do quite like her little secretary outfit. Oh yeah. Uh, with the one, with the one sleeve. Oh Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, she's very so, she's very attractive. Uh, oh my, oh my word, yes. Yeah, yeah. Peter Lind Hayes and her, I believe, in real life were married. Oh, uh, so they I worked together on this. Yeah. Um. They, yeah, she's she's very attractive. I, you know, I'm not real familiar with any of her work, to be honest with you. She, I, I mean, I know her from this movie and maybe a couple other things, but um, I'm, I'd be surprised if I probably haven't seen her in more stuff and just don't know right. it. Um. But yeah, she's she's striking and she's. It's interesting the way they they shoot her here. She's striking when she needs to be an object of desire. She's motherly when she needs to be an object of motherhood, mm-hmm. and she's um, whatever the other third thing would be. Whenever I mean, they just they somehow manage to find a way to both sexualize and uh, keep her very innocent at the same time. It's a very interesting yes. way of. But you're right; she doesn't really have any agency. She's just she's just kind of there as an object. Yes, as like yeah. a MacGuffin in some weird way for these three male characters. One who's trying to figure out his life, the other one who's potentially in a midlife crisis, and the third one who is about to go over the top. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And feels like he needs to, you know, I guess have someone in his life because he's dedicated his whole life to this one piece of music, uh, and mm-hmm. and he's possibly, or not possibly, practically is insane. Oh no! Yeah, he is. Um, but the movie is 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 very much about uh, control, uh, and especially about how every kid uh, always feels like they're totally not in control of their own lives. Yeah, well, uh, I think now, that's what's interesting. I think what what happens, what you're seeing is, you have the young man who's not in control of his life, and then you have the plumber, who honestly, even though he feels some sense of freedom, he realizes throughout the arc of the story that maybe he doesn't have any control of his life either. That yeah, he's a, he's yeah. a cog in the system. Yep. And then even the guy, Dr. T, Dr. Turlewicker, 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 Turwilliker, Turwilliker, Tallywacker, yes. Tallywacker, uh, Dr. Tallywacker, who says <laughs> <laughs> it's a different movie. Tally me banana. Uh, <laughs> um, who is seems like he's been in control his whole life is now losing control because he's taken yeah. it too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's really the psychosis of it of the film itself is I don't know if it was intentional. But with Theodore Giesel, you kind of got to believe it is in some way because almost all of his stories, as simple as they seem to be, he he was always kind of playing with the psychosis of children and yeah, the, the yeah, way. Yeah. And when I say psychosis, I mean the the biggest fears we have, the biggest the dangers we feel, the the loneliness we can sometimes feel as children. I don't mean the you know. Well, I think that's I think that's why he kind of has maintained a universal appeal because most of the fears that we we kind of live with throughout our lives start when we're children. Right, right. And They're a right lot there. of them don't happen when we're adults. Right, right. And for everybody, it's it's different. I mean, there might be people out there with similarities, but for everybody, it's different. Um, but the one thing that we talked about in the beginning that isn't different is 
we can all have that moment where we probably did something or had to do something that we didn't want to do and how we handled that may have may have or may not have dictated how we handle the rest of our life it's a very formative time when you're young and your parents are pushing you towards something i i got pushed so i'll I'll just say this i got pushed really hard into sports when i was a kid Mm -hmm. i got pushed so hard that i rebelled and walked away from it uh it was ugly it was ugly my dad was very ugly about it my dad was also an abusive alcoholic but he was he was very ugly about it Uh, if i got three hits out of four times being up on base i got yelled at because i didn't get a fourth hit uh he is his version of perfection was not my version of perfection mm-hmm. um so when i got old enough i said fuck you and walked away and uh it was actually the best thing i ever did in my life because it, it, it put me on the path that i wanted to be on but i was scared to death to do that mm-hmm. i had to make that choice and uh some people do some people don't some people do what their parents want them to do their whole life um but for me it was you know I was tired of getting yelled at. <laughs> well, yeah, no, and that's, I mean, that's, you know, completely, everybody has a breaking point. It just depends on what theirs is. Mm-hmm. And, it, and then once you hit that breaking point, it's either, yeah, do you break left or do you break right? Do you, you know, yeah. do you get over it or do you go under it? Right, right. I mean, those are basically your options. Didn't there are variations, to, yeah, but. Yeah, but. Didn't, didn't mean to admit in my, some of my possible psychotic breaks on the show. What? Yeah. I thought that's what we did here. I'm not going to tell I you. I know it's what I do. I'm not going to tell you what he called me when I told him that I liked film and books. <laughs> but let <laughs> me tell you that? this: it was a derogatory comment. I'll tell you that. I was, was going to say it wasn't a nice thing to say to a child. I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. Oh lordy! Uh, so <laughs> gotta love <yeah>. parents. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's one of the that's one of the weird things is that you and I had a very, very, very different. Uh, family uh dynamics mm-hmm, growing mm-hmm. up yeah, so yeah, yeah uh but that's just the way it is I mean, yeah it's, it is nothing you can do about it but deal with it yep um so the movie here it, it does look like a dr seuss book um yes and i think that part of the problem with it is that you know putting real humans into a, a dr seuss landscape for me doesn't quite work yeah uh, the good thing is that it works for being a dream just enough, though. Mm-hmm. I also don't think that anyone's dreams are this coherently constructed in, you know, in architecture at the very least. Yeah. I don't mind art. Um, but there's a lot of very precise, uh, precise chaos in the, uh, in the sets of this thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. and the first thing that I always think of when I think of this film in, in visual terms is stuff like, uh, the, uh, Rene Cardona, uh, Santa Claus movie, um, you know, just, just art directed to death. Yes. Uh, this movie yeah. and that movie and, you know, a few other movies, uh, this one, the, uh, the weird, weird folklore stuff from like Norway and shit. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Uh, the, this, this one, I, I, there's a dash, maybe more than a dash of, um, uh, Wizard of Oz here. A little bit. A little yeah, bit yeah. But there's also this dash of German expressionism here. Very much. And, yeah. Well, it's weird because for for how for how like for how intricate the sets are, they're also very plain. Yes, yeah. So there's very... a lot of area that's just like one color. Yeah, yeah, and they're very wide open. I mean, these these sets are yes. huge. Yes, I mean, yes. We're not. I mean, if you haven't seen this film and, we're, and you hear us talking about it first, I mean, that's fine. First of all, because we're not going to spoil it. But second of all, 
just let me warn you guys, these sets are huge. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. big. And uh, there's a lot of time where you're like, well, that seems like a lot of waste of money because they're only walking in like one or two spots in this gigantic set. And uh, they're not really using it to its full ability. I tell you, though, to this day, that moment when this kid climbs up that ladder, mm-hmm. when uh, Tommy or when Bart climbs up the ladder, it is still visually one of the most striking moments in the movie to me. That, oh, it is, yeah. That ladder yeah. to nowhere. Yep. With the way it curves and everybody looking up at him. There's probably some psychological stuff going on there too. But oh, yeah. but I love that image. That image is still great. And I, I I like the henchmen to be honest with you too. I like these kind of wacky superhero outfits with the large gun sacks gun holster sacks on the side i don't think they ever get their guns out by the way i don't uh i don't think there's a gun drawn there's certainly not a gun fired yeah but uh, we can definitely see some type of weapon in this yes oversized gun holster that's on their hip and 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 if you haven't seen this film if you look up any images from it you'll see the henchmen they're they're blue and yellow i believe yes and they look like cartoon henchmen Uh, they really do and almost superhero like i think the maybe the aquabats or the maybe that that band that uh okay kind of pops yeah. up on i always them. thought of uh i always thought of um uh, steve ditko's the creeper and the madman definitely some ditko there <laughs> definitely yeah. ditko saw this film <laughs> oh yeah yeah well he was definitely a, a seuss file I <laughs> yeah would say. but uh certainly that but it definitely has that early marvel look mm-hmm. uh those early marvel baddies uh, almost to the point of the curly drawn mustache, uh, uh-huh, even uh-huh. with the twirling curly mustache. So, I, I I do find those elements striking. The piano itself striking, all that stuff. But I have to agree with you. As as much as this movie is visually, it's amazing. I mean, it it really kind of pops when you see it. You do find yourself watching it, thinking, "Wow, there's there's a there's just a lot of space that isn't filled here." It feels yes. very empty in a weird way. Yes. Yes. It and feels very staged. Yeah. It's very strange that way. I mean, it's still, yes. I, mean, I know you would agree, it's still visually striking, but it's 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 not like Caligari or something where you can tell those things are kept to a minimum and they try to, they make it feel big, but they, it's never, it's never overblown. Whereas this, it's overblown. And, yes. uh, yeah, yeah. and they're trying, it's, it's, it's like they're constantly trying to fill the space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's almost like they didn't have enough extras to do it. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it does kind of feel that way. And you know, by then the other the other uh, aspect of uh, what that Seuss brings in here is that he he does get to do some of his linguistic uh, acrobatics in the screenplay, uh-huh. uh, like in the scene where uh, where August the plumber describes the currency that he gets paid in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does this kind of nice little, uh, you know, I get paid in this, and then I get paid in that, and then I do it, and this is worth <laughs> ten of these. Yeah, and there's these uh, what do they call pastulas? Pastulas, yeah. yeah. That's uh, worth, worth ten pastulas. What's a pastula? I don't know what a pastula is, but it's an, I mean, it might be related to pastrami. Uh, <laughs> let's hope not, or else I'm going to go broke. Um, so uh, Roland's uh, uh, direction is, I think, solid. Uh, I think there's, you know, a few very thoughtful shots, but I think that it's also very utilitarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's a, that's really a surprising thing for 1953, uh, and maybe even less surprising uh, with a production that would entail being as locked in and constructed as this would need to be. Yeah. Um, 
and the story is, you know, it, it, the story itself in the movie is, is constructed as every musical is. Uh, the performance aspects are, are good enough, I think. Uh, certainly no worse than anything else uh, of the time or for the genre. But, uh, you know, visual aspects aside, I, they, the, the musical performance pieces don't really do anything for me. I don't think they really stand out as anything um, especially uh, noteworthy uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um I do tend to think that the uh, the folks who eventually would make uh, Manos the Hands of Fate had to have drawn inspiration uh, for their uh, villain's costume from Conrad's wardrobe around his uh, his palace because he's got this this purple and black number that looks a hell of a lot like the robe that uh, yeah. that the Manos character uh, from that movie wears. Um, I feel like a lot of people and also, from, that... and also from the, there, there's a very pervasive hand motif all over the joint as well. So yeah. I think that they uh, yeah. they were students of this movie. Yeah. I think that uh, there's that, and I think also, you know, you, you see, like so many of the filmmakers of that era, the Tim Burtons and and stuff like that, kind of inspired sure. by this stuff. Sure, sure, sure. Because that, that one of the first things that comes to mind for me is the kind of, uh, you know, Bob is working at this time, so but there a little bit of Planet of the Vampires came up in some of my visuals here, but more than anything, I see the inspiration of this movie. And you know, we should say, I should say, I was going to save this for my side of the review, but. From what I've read and everything I can gather anywhere, this movie cost almost three million dollars to make. Jesus, in fifty three. In nineteen fifty three. So that was like that was like a hundred million dollars today. Yeah, I, I don't know how much it was worth then, but I mean, it bombed. It's a lot. Yeah, it bombed. I can tell you that. Oh, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that at all. This thing is way too esoteric for for mass audiences. It would have been. Uh, let's see. I'm looking that up now. Do, do, do. I want to see what three million dollars in nineteen fifty three was. <laughs> Value of uh doing it around nineteen fifty three. A million dollars is worth nine million dollars now. Jesus, so twenty seven million. Twenty seven million dollars is what Oof. this movie is worth. How what is that what is that in pistolas? That's twenty seven million pistolas, I think. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> it's a that's a one to one. The dollar for dollar exchange right there. One to one on the pistolas. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you what it's worth in pastrami pastrami strands. But, but but just think about that. Just you know, just think about that for a minute. I mean, anybody listening to this show, just think about that. That is a hell of a gamble. Now, this is the maybe the apex of the Hollywood musical in some ways. The late forties going into the fifties. Uh, the fifties really a lot of musicals then. But I mean that is a hell of a gamble, man. Twenty, you know, three million, almost three million dollars. Uh, and it, it, you see it on screen, right? And and maybe the one time in the film where it feels like they really spent the money and did everything is during the dungeon scene, which I'm, I'm guessing that's the yes. scene that you found very striking. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, that's actually my, my the next uh, bit of my notes. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. Uh, because you know, I I really love the that the uh, the green musicians that are stuck down in the dungeon uh, are basically playing instruments, you know, like we would see many years down the road on the Fat Albert cartoon. <laughs> uh, like a, there's a, there's a radiator that the one guy's playing, yeah. or these bizarre manufactured horns and so on. And yeah. speaking of Fat Albert, uh, I also can't help but think that the uh, the dumb Donald character from that cartoon may have been at least partly inspired. By the uh, the creepy elevator operator in this movie. Yeah, man, that elevator uh, operator is so out of place in this movie. He right? is he is you want to talk terrifying. About a sore fucking thumb. <laughs> yeah, he is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> but uh, I think that you know the key to the uh, the the dungeon scene. I think is that you know all these miserable plebes uh, all appear to be truly enjoying playing their instruments that Doctor T feels are nothing but noise because his whole thing is that you know his instrument is the piano. Yeah, these are very. Um, he actually makes a comment in the movie. There's actually some point in the movie where he complains about every instrument but the piano. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So he his that, his objectivity that, of sending you to hell is putting you in an area where there's a bunch of percussion. Because he yes. hates percussive instruments, <laughs> can't stand them, can't and stand then, them. and that's why you know then the most beautiful piece of music in the world is essentially kids banging on a gigantic piano. Yeah. Um, so the ending does uh, manage to still kind of shoehorn in a little of the old fifties atomic fear that we all love so much, um, because the uh, the big uh, kind of uh, key to getting out of this whole thing uh, is something which can blow up uh kind of like the white cat from tom and jerry um if you know what i'm talking about um yeah yeah well so, i mean this movie know, the white mouse yeah, yeah. Uh, this movie it's not only 50 there's some 50 sci-fi elements but obviously i don't know if you even brought this up maybe you did in your review and if you did i'm apologizing right now to you but it's also very anti-fascist right because it's sure it's sure. clearly a take as i think most films are post-world war ii uh, it's clearly a take on uh, fascism and mm-hmm. the the dangers of fascism and di- dictators dictatorship. Well, yeah, and authoritarianism in general. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because I mean, and obviously, as that relates to children, then it's the perfect little gateway because no kid likes to be told what to do. Correct. Um, until so they, I mean, until they become adults. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then you love telling everybody what to do. Uh, yes. Figure that one out, but. Uh, you know, so I, I think that for me, like as an oddity and a pretty daring one, uh, I find that, you know, this movie's pretty interesting. But I also, I think that it's also very, I find this movie very plain and constrained, mm. uh, despite some of, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some of the, the, the ostentatiousity, ostentatiousness. We're just making up, uh, we're making up words this week. Fuck yeah, why not? Honorous. If, 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 yeah, I mean. If Zeus can, I can. <laughs> We're honorous uh, and austerity. I, I drammed my foam fingler. Um, so, uh, and, and I think that right. so much of the movie just kind of lopes along, uh, I think. And frankly, I, I personally it's, just don't get much out of it. It's too long. From some thematic yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's definitely too long. Uh, it is. Uh, I like it the is. visuals. The music's fine. The It's it's, it's fine. Okay. It's okay. It's, it's the 50s. It's, it's that kind it of is. music. Yes. Uh, it's very maudlin and very, yes. you know, standards. If you know, if you're into standards and things like that, very clean cut. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie's at its best, uh, sadly, probably when uh, it's doing some type of action, because otherwise, yeah. I don't think it really knows what it wants to be. Although I do think the scenes between Tommy Reddig and uh, Peter Lynn Hayes are pretty good. Uh, well, I think the part of part of what part of what you're running into here is you're running into a problem of translation because yeah. Seuss Seuss books, you know, just they have a hard time translating into reality, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's what this movie is. I mean, had this been animated, I think it would have been a completely different story. Probably. I, I mean, this movie. I mean, it, this is not a bad movie. No, uh, I think it just it just it it plays to a very specific audience that simply does not include me. Uh, you know, had I seen this as a child, it may well, may well have been, you know, a, a favorite of mine. And I think that uh, as, as something to show your children, uh, you could do far, far worse. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate this movie. I don't especially care for it. But um, 
I think that, you know, I mean, like I said, had this been a cartoon, I think that you would have had a much more successful uh, translation of Seuss's mentality uh, to something that, that, you know, people would have found more appealing. And then I don't think it would have been a, the bomb that it, it wound up being. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, I mean, once you when you when you try to sandwich uh, real people into cartoons, uh, then you, you know, you wind up with uh, uh, modern action movies. Mm-hmm. Um and or, you know, or, obviously uh, cart- cartoon sandwiches, one or the other. <laughs> exactly. Well, hold the pastrami, please. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I mean, you you could have you could have a, a field day on that subject. You could, uh, you could. which we're not going to do. But um, I mean, you can if you want. I don't really don't care. Uh, but you know, that's that's my big takeaway of the movie. Is it's kind of like you know, I appreciated, I appreciate what it was doing. I appreciate the the balls it took to to even attempt this thing. Yeah. Uh, but it, for me, it just doesn't stick the landing mm. uh and i i have a hard time just kind of getting through it even though i i like elements uh of the movie if sure. that makes sense sure no it makes total sense makes no, total but sense. that's all that i got it is a bit of an obtuse i'm not gonna lie a bit of an odd choice but uh, i think it definitely fits into the, the general thesis of what we tried to do with you know the beginnings of the show because yeah. it is it has it has become a cult movie because it's well, it's hundred percent a cult movie. Because it is so odd, uh, in tone and everything else. But I agree with you. The pacing of the movie is way off, yes. and at times, if you watch this film, I think you'll find some of the visual elements and some of the things that you're looking forward to in this movie. You'll find them good. Like the Han- it's worth watching for the Hans Con- Conried performance. Yes, no doubt. I think we can all, me and you, can agree on that. And I think anybody that watches this. It's a great bad guy performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's over the top. Uh, you'll hear Captain Hook more than you will hear any other character. Sammy, uh, why are you not playing the piano? Yeah, yeah, that's what you'll hear. Exactly. Like, does this like that? And the visual elements, while they are striking, they do, as Todd says, they they do at times feel empty. And it's a very strange thing because you would think if it's one of these movies where it's almost like a Jess Franco or a Jean Roland film where me and Will have talked about this. And I'm sure me and you've talked about this over the years, too, because we've seen we've done some rolling on the movies on the show and stuff. Uh, we haven't done much Jess Franco and there's a reason for that. But <laughs> but the truth is, every now and then, Jess Franco could whip up an image that was like, wow, yeah. you know. And Roland, he even more so. John Roland, he 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 would definitely have some great imagery. But sometimes the films would feel empty, vacuous, just kind of, yes. just kind of like you know, like a wafer, just kind of there, yeah. Yeah. but not really satisfying in any way. No real meat to it. No pastrami. There's no pastrami on this wafer. Yeah, and this I think does a little bit better than that. But even at that, this is a, a you know, it's 89 minutes long. It, it struggles at times with its pacing. It doesn't know what it's doing. There's a great father-son slash dynamic here, uh, plus a mother dynamic. But obviously, the Bart character has two father figures here, the teacher and the plumber. And I never really felt like I never really – I think at some point they had to have at least had Dr. T – be somewhat of an idol to the Bart character so he would at least have some inner turmoil on who he picks mm-hmm. I don't think they ever give you that Dr. T they from don't. the get go is just this uh, dictator 
this awful evil person who's mean to children. Right. And that's all he is. So as great as the Conrad performance is, it's also sadly very one-dimensional because he's really just in it for himself. There's never any moment. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, he's still, yeah. Even with the female character, he's just, he just wants that because he wants that. Yes. He wants that so he could show it off. Yeah. She's completely trophy. Yeah. Yeah. Just like his clothing. So it's just, (laughs) it's just, I think that's where they messed up. Also, I think this movie, obviously it has a troubled production history. It's very expensive. Um, plus Roy Rowland and Stanley Kramer, who would go on to direct movies like, uh, the defiant ones and guess who's coming to dinner, stuff like that. The producer slash director. I know eventually that a uh, Roy Rowland kind of got kicked off the picture behind the scenes and Stanley Kramer fixed it. And then Kramer would go on to direct movies just a couple years after this. So I think he probably always wanted to be a director. Um, but he was the producer here trying to get this made, but I, I think there were some disagreements behind the scenes. It also kind of has that. It kind of has that troubled production feel. It feels like it mm-hmm. it knows what it wants to be, and it tries to, but I agree with you. It doesn't always stick the landing. There's a few moments, certainly the dungeon scene, uh, them going down the elevator to the end of that dungeon scene. It seems to know exactly what kind of movie it wants to be, mm-hmm. um, but some of the times the bookends, and the bookends are fine. I think they went back and reshot the bookends because I think originally it just started down there in in or down i say down there because it, to me even the the world of dr t is, but if is things, hell if things are starting down there you might want to get yeah. a, a good south <laughs> yeah. but i mean the the dr t world is is hell right i mean yes the yeah. dungeon is one step below but it's still dr t's world is hell because there's punishment for children for not doing the right thing which is very much a religious allegory anyway so it it, it the the original film started there, and I think they went back and shot the bookends, almost the the Wizard of Oz esque bookends of the real world, and put those in there so people wouldn't be so maybe confused by the fantasy elements. But I kind of wonder, do they really even need those? I, th- I think the movie may have been better off if it just would have been high fantasy from the get go and stayed high fantasy to the end. Uh, uh, I think it's possible. Um... Uh, yeah, I mean, if you really sit down and think about it, I think that probably would have been the smart thing to do. Yeah. I think they're linking this thing up to you. I think the only thing that you really kind of get out of out of that is a much more concrete idea of the August the Plumber uh, character. Yeah. It's really the only thing that the, the like reality um, scenes give us, I think. Yeah. If that it, makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it totally makes sense. You know, I think the movie, you know, I think it bombs for a couple of reasons. I think it bombs because it's bonkers. First of all, I don't think people in 1953 are interested in this kind of movie. Um, even if it is a musical, I don't think they're interested in, you know, kids being, uh, the subjects of a subject of abuse. And even though it's not physical abuse, I mean, it's still, it's certainly emotional abuse. And obviously the fifties is not a, you know, that's a different time. People were probably emotionally abusing their kids all over the place, but I don't think people want to go to the movies for that in the fifties either. You're coming out of world war two. Uh, I think people want to go to the movies and I think this is the reason why musicals became so big in the fifties and early sixties. People just want to go to the movies to forget, you know, they, they want to just go to the movies for fun for the yeah. bubble gum of it. And yep. this movie has a, it, it's it's like burnt toast. It has a slight ugliness to it. 
it's, it's ever so <laughs> it's ever so subtle, but it's definitely there, right? I mean, See, now I'm hungry. Yeah, <laughs> burnt toast and pastrami. That's right. A, <laughs> with a nice turkey, turkey club on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that I, I think that's why it bombs. I mean, personally. I don't think either one. I don't think any actors in here are obviously box office draws either. I think they had to spend the money on the production, and so they couldn't get a, you know, a Jimmy Cagney or a, right. or you know somebody like that. I can't think of who the big musical stars were at the time, but you know they can't get uh, Judy, well, that would Judy Garland, like what, Gene Kelly, or yeah, Judy, Judy Garland, Gene Kelly, you know Frank Sinatra, maybe. I mean, they can't get people like this in there because uh, I think that they would have, you know, they didn't have the money for it. I think they spent mm-hmm. all the money in the production itself. So, and it shows. It shows. It just, I agree with you. It just, at times, I'm thinking to myself, why is this kid walking around and there's nobody here? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it feels a bit like some of the scenes in uh, Blake Edwards' uh, SOB where Julie Andrews <laughs> is walking around these sets before she flashes her breast. <laughs> anyway um yeah no but i think it's an interesting curiosity uh fun to talk about um i have mixed emotions on it i like it i love the poster uh of course i love a lot oh, yeah, of those yeah. i love those 50s posters anyway but uh visually i think the movie is quite striking story-wise it's interesting although i think it gets lost in itself the music's fine if you're into the, i mean I don't listen to this kind of music typically and stuff, but I mean, as far as the music movie goes, it it, it works in the, in the scheme of the movie. Um, I I enjoyed it, um, but I, I bet I'm I'm close to what you are score wise. I bet we're I bet we're closer than we think. So we'll see what your make okay. or breaks MBTs are. All right, uh, so make or break for me is going to be Conrad's uh, "Dress Me Up" sequence. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not to be confused with the Madonna song. Um, I think that this really comes closest. Uh, to bridging the divide between live action and being an almost perfectly timed and choreographed cartoon. Uh, and, you know, this song is also the perfect length uh, to boot. Um, MVT, you know, uh, I, I want to give it to Conrad because he's just eaten up every inch of his role here. But I think that at the end of the day, I, I, I got to go with Seuss, uh, largely because um, his stamp is very, very, very clearly all over this thing. Uh, and its perspective, uh, and also because, you know, I'm not likely to get the chance to give it to him again and score for me. Uh, I gotta go 5.5 on this one. Hmm. Um, so, All right. yeah. so, so we are more, there different, you have more different than I thought. See that? There you go. Surprise me on that one. Um, my MVT is also Hans Conried, Dr. T himself. Uh, I don't see how it couldn't be. He, he chews up every scene he's in, and he's, he does, yeah. he's so charismatic, even as the bad guy, and so full of life in a weird way that uh, he's pretty great. Although I do think there's a pretty solid kid performance in this movie. I think the uh, Tommy Reddick or whatever his name is, I think he's pretty good in the movie. He does as well as, uh, as any child actor I think ever did, yeah. especially for the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my make or break, I'm going to go with the dungeon scene. I think it's wacky, oh, nice. yeah. uh, pretty crazy. Um, I like that uh, that dressing scene as well, though. It's very Disney that dressing scene. It's yes. very yeah, 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 yeah. It's very much something they would do um, with a slight tinge of darkness to it, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I, I enjoy. But again, that also has the the indelible presence of uh, Hans Conried, where uh, the dungeon scene doesn't necessarily. I mean, he's there. He's kind of in the background, but I love the kind of 
craziness of the scene, the absolutely wackiness of, you know, taking somebody, the mechanics of it and taking somebody and putting them on a swing to, to ding a little, a little gong is just, it's just ridiculous. And I love that kind of ridiculousness of it. My score, a little bit higher than yours. I'm going to go seven out of 10 on this one. Ooh, we, yeah, we are a bit apart on that one. A bit apart on this one. Yes. But I, I nice. think, I think, you know, I have seen this more than a handful of times at this point, And I think this movie's kind of grown on me. Uh, I would not recommend it to anybody who, first of all, tells me they don't like musicals. If somebody said that, I'd be like, well, this isn't the movie for you. Yeah, 100%. And then second of all, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody who is even, I don't know what the word would be. Uh, If you you find yourself not really watching anything past like 1965 and back, you're probably not going to get anything out of this movie. Yeah, no, you have to actually uh, like uh, movies. Yeah, older cinema. <laughs> well, you have to like older cinema. There's no doubt about that. Which is, yeah, yeah. Which if is something no, we can If you have no uh, tolerance for for stuff before you were born, then you will not like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, next week we're going to be talking about a film as well that's older than this. Yes, but obviously yes, the, the themes are more adult. And, and uh, you know, it, it, they're going for a different thing here. But... Mm-hmm. I, I still think that, you know, folks, I, I think certain things age well. Uh, I don't think this would age well for most folks. I think this is a this is a time capsule movie. This is, I agree with that, yeah. Yeah, it's a curiosity in what it is. Uh, if you find yourself, though, enraptured or caught up in movies like that, or, you know, some derivative of Wizard of Oz or something like that, it's not nearly as good as Wizard of Oz, but it still is interesting in that way. So, mm-hmm. all right. We are going to take a short break and come back and discuss Runaway from 1984. We'll be back right after this. is amazing so some behind the scenes fun for you guys that listen uh todd and i were like well clearly we got to pick the bon jovi song for this uh this review and todd said clearly and uh then we were like well we could pick the the great runway song which is of course in my opinion uh is the dale shannon song i i I think indeed it's a great rock and roll song i mean it's just a great song um and uh then todd out of nowhere says hey 
Remember that video <laughs> of that kid with the big hair who sang that in the 80s? And, and I was like, yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> and then we went down a wormhole trying to figure out who that was. So Louis Cardenas yes. has been brought back into the fold of uh, pop culture by the GGTMC. Uh, and for those who watched MTV of a certain generation, uh, Todd oh and I's generation God. certainly, will remember him from uh, the, that video because they played the shit out of that video. <laughs> they loved that video back in the day, and, I, and like Todd said, I think it had run, it had a stop motion dinosaurs in it. Or yes, something. it did. It did it was, absolutely. It was a strange, strange video. Had nothing to do uh-huh. with actual nothing runaway. to do with a teenage runaway. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> But uh, it was a great video, and uh, yeah. And actually, I'm going to add that song to my playlist because that is awesome. That's, <laughs> that's one of those moments of nostalgia that you kind of like that creep up on you every now and then. That, that was that was great. Uh, All right, let's get into our next film, Runaway, 1984. Run, 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 run. All right, uh, this is directed by Michael Crichton and written by Michael Crichton, and you might know him as the creator of the Jurassic Park novel, uh, which would go on to be... A huge hit, but Michael Crichton also wrote quite a. He, he was a pretty good writer. He wrote uh, pop novels, I would say, pop yep. culture novels. But uh, Coma, Westworld, he oh, yeah. did uh, wrote and directed. Yeah, 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 and he did some films, right? The Great Train Robbery with uh, Sean Connery yeah. and yeah, uh, yeah. He was a pretty good filmmaker, I think. Uh, not bad uh, for a guy who started out as a medical doctor. Um, just a weird guy. Not, not a weird guy, but I mean, he's a, he was six foot. I think he was six foot nine in real life. Oh Jesus! Six foot nine, a medical doctor, an author, and a filmmaker. <laughs> I mean, make up your mind, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's such a weird career path. I know, like, I know. it's it's crazy. Um, in the near future, not. yeah, in the near future, a police officer specializes in malfunctioning robots. When a robot turns out to have been programmed to kill, he begins to uncover a homicidal plot to create killer robots, and his son becomes a target. What? Yes. So this has got. And then to, he gets sold a reverse mortgage. And somehow he ends up wearing chainmail, uh, <laughs> which is interesting and very GGTMC. Chainmail and Velcro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this stars Tom Selleck, um, who they were trying to make a movie star for some time yeah. uh, because he's uh, got a striking look. Now, I'll be the first to admit Tom Selleck's not always the greatest actor, but I think he looks great on screen. I think he's got a very... He's got a lot of personality. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of charm. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah. He definitely has that. And, uh, you know, Magnum P.I. is pretty much the height of his popularity, and uh, it's a perfect character for him, and it's uh, mm-hmm. great. I like the, for those who have not watched them, the Jess Stone uh, TV films, where he plays uh, an investigator and stuff. They're pretty solid. They're pretty good. So, you know, if you're wanting to go down a... Because Tom Selleck doesn't have a whole lot of theatrical films. So if you want to go no, down a this, nice... Lasseter, High Road to China. Yeah, Lasseter, man. That's a, that's a pretty... Terminal Island. Yeah, Lasseter. Lasseter's a pretty good Terminal Island. Lasseter's a pretty <laughs> good uh, pretty good film, actually. It is, actually. I, I quite enjoyed that one. Yeah. They really tried to push him. I mean, he had, quote-unquote, big movie star written all over him. Uh, yeah. Striking looks, all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, mustache to die yeah, for. Yeah, maybe one of the most perfectly quaffed and combed mustaches ever. And, and an actor who is so synonymous with his mustache, like Burt Reynolds, that people, if he decides to shave it off, people will not watch the film. Yeah, yeah. Well, him and uh, Sam Elliott. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Sam Elliott without a mustache is like, ugh, what's going on? Yeah, what is that pastrami face doing? 
<laughs> back, back to the pastrami. We got the <laughs> Cynthia Rhodes here, who uh, she's pretty great. She's in Flashdance, uh, Dirty Dancing, films like that. Mostly known as a dancer, but very attractive lady. Uh, Kirstie Alley shows up here talking about an attractive lady. Uh, uh-huh. Kirstie Alley, uh, I've always found her attractive, even during her quote-unquote heavy phase. Uh, yes. I don't know. I like her raspy voice. I think she's pretty. I think she's striking. Yes. I've always liked. Her. I fell in love with her. Uh, what was it? Uh, Star Trek Two. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a Vulcan in that, and she's an attractive yep. Vulcan. She's Vulcan me crazy. Yeah, yeah. you you wanted to Vulcan <laughs> the shit out of that, right? You wanted to. <laughs> you was thinking of Vulcan, all right. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite things about this movie is the performance from Gene Simmons. It's uh, not. Indeed. It's not subtle, and uh, <laughs> thank God for that. It's great. Uh, this is an era when he's trying to kind of break into movies and he's playing bad guys. Now we've talked about him before in one of the craziest bad guy performances of all time and never say die or is never, never too young to die. Never too young to die. Never too young to die. Never say die is another movie. But, uh, here he's playing a character named Luther, but he has so much, he has so much great dialogue in this that we'll, I'm sure you will hear some Gene Sermons impersonations as we go along here. It's possible. Yeah. And he always manages to somehow look like he's always going to stick his tongue out, even though in this movie he, does. he, he doesn't. Although he comes close. He does a, I won't say when, but he does a cat hiss in this. That's one for the records, man. It's, <laughs> it's, it's up there with the, uh, the uh, villain from uh, Bare Knuckles. Oh, my God. It is a hiss. It is. <laughs> and it is, it is so cheap. It is such a cheap moment. That's all I'll say. Anyway. Uh-huh. Stan Shaw's in here as well. I like Stan Shaw. Joey Kramer. He did some kids' yeah, movies. Yeah. He was a kid actor during uh, our our youth. Uh, Chris Mulkey's yeah, in he here. Was, uh, was he in Cloak and Dagger? Uh, I think he was the kid in Cloak and Dagger. I feel like he was the kid in Cloak and Dagger. Um, he was definitely the kid in Flight of the Navigator. Was he... Yeah, okay. That's what yeah, you, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what you know him from primarily because that looks like he, – he only did 10 films. Runaway, right. Clan of Cave Bear, um, and then he did Fly the Navigator, and then he mostly went to TV. Didn't really do much yeah. after that. Although in 2021, it looks like he's made a comeback, and he did a film called The 12-Step Strangler. That's a great title. It's a great yes. title. Uh, so it looks like he's working again in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the arts. But yeah, he was – I think Fly the Navigator is probably what you know him from the most. Have you seen that film? And I want to mention uh-huh. Michael Paul Chan here. He doesn't get a lot of mention. He's a great character actor. He plays a, a kind of a security guard at one point in this, but he's in a lot of movies. Um, <laughs> he's kind of silly in this movie, but he he he's a he's a fun character actor. I like him. Mm-hmm. He's he's in God. He's in so many things. Yeah, every time he pops up, you're like, hey, it's him. Yeah, he's one of those. He's one of those guys. Yeah, yeah, one of those guys definitely. Uh, so that's a that's a beefy cast, and uh, the film itself, like I says, directed by Michael Crichton. Um, and I think, you know, going back and watching this, I had some concerns because I knew from this movie that I remember when I used to watch it, even as a kid, I used to feel like the robot tech was less than interesting. Okay. (laughs) Uh, the computer stuff was fine, but the robot tech, even in 1984, I thought was pretty lame. Uh, they were basically just boxed remote boxes. Yeah, boxes, remote cars, remote control cars, and, and they just uh, they just weren't interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. they were kind of you know what we thought maybe robots might be, and it was just not real glamorous. The spiders were a little bit more fun, although clearly as I've gotten older, the spiders look like 
some little random wind-up pop toy that you could probably buy at like a Cracker Barrel or something. Um, but they still work, uh, the spiders. Although, I got to tell you, Todd, the physics of these spiders kind of baffles me a little bit. The hopping and the... I think the sticking to the wall is fine because it's a cage at some point, but I don't know. They seem to be very spry for yes. uh, these. This well, era you got to remember these are robot legs, so they have lots yeah. of hydraulics in them. Yeah, I guess so. I and guess things. So. <laughs> I guess so. I, Technology. I, st- I still got to believe. I still believe to this day that the I struggle sometimes with the spider robots in here. I do like them. <laughs> I do like that. Well, you know what you know what I think of whenever I see the robot spiders in here? I think of the uh the spiders in uh what was it, the beyond. Ah, yes. yes. Because they're <laughs> essentially the same thing except that these yeah. have less hair on them. Yeah. yeah. These have less fake hair. Yeah. <laughs> these actually look more real than the spiders in the beyond. Exactly. Watch that comment, man. As 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 Luther would say, that's not very nice, Ramsey. It's not very nice, Ramsey. <laughs> There's gonna, oh man, there's so many great They're lines. loaded with acid. <laughs> They're loaded with acid. That's the way he says acid. The way that he hits, yeah, the way that he hits that word, I fucking love. I've carried that with me for three fucking decades, man. Yeah. Oh, one of my favorite lines in here, and I'll just steal it for a soundbite for the show is "Drop it, sucker." <laughs> I was like, did he just watch some black exploitation movies before he did this movie? <laughs> Drop it, sucker. Oh, good old, good old Gene. This is only half of the templates. <laughs> you know what this is worth? He's uh, he's so much fun in this movie. He really is. I mean, this is. Oh, he's digging the fuck in. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love this performance from him. I like him in Wanted Dead or Alive. I like him in this. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I like him in Never uh, Too Young to Die. Yeah, and he, well, I mean, he's here's a guy who clearly, you know, has a fondness for villainous roles to the point of, you know, just I mean, this is like you could tell that this is him just living out his dream. Yeah, he's one of the I first. Mean, that really shows through. He's one of the first, I think, uh, popular uh, people in popular entertainment who really let their love of comic books and horror movies and all that stuff kind of shine through. Not only in his in his creative ventures with kiss, but in just about everything he's done, he's, uh, you know, he's kind of like Scott Ian of anthrax or the, you know, these guys that are inspired by the things they grew up on. Right. And Gene Simmons right. grew up, uh, loving, you know, science fiction and horror movies and comic books and these things. And, uh, he just so happened to have, a a, a pin shot for writing songs. And, and again, rather you, I'm, I'm not a big kiss guy, but I understand those who are, uh, you know, they love them to the bone. Uh, and, and I get that. I mean, they have a devout and very solid stand, uh, fan base. Um, but I, I think he's one of the first guys that I recognized as a kid that it was cool to like all the things I liked and still be, you know, a popular actor or a musician or any of those things. I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, I remember be growing up, you know, the Misfits, I remember the Misfits, but the Misfits never really got popular, right? They... The, the, I thought they were fascinating in the Ramones as well because they were singing about the things that I liked watching mm-hmm. or the things I liked reading, right? And then here comes Kirk Hammett of Metallica with a Bela Lugosi guitar and uh, a Frankenstein guitar, and then Scott Ian yep. comes along, and he's wearing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shorts. Yep. yep. And I'm thinking, wow, these guys all like the same things I like. 
And it, it was just kind of a crossover that I really appreciated as a youth. And it made me kind of get behind that. And even though, I, like I said, I'm not a big Kiss fan. And I think Gene Simmons, personally, is probably not a really nice person in real life. I'm going to go with you on that one. Maybe uh, He maybe. will probably be suing us yeah. Uh, yeah. when this show goes up. Yeah. Um, I won't say anything the, more, just in case, because he is notorious for those kinds of things. Yeah. But uh, not saying that he listens to this, but I don't know. You never he's, know. He's, uh, he's dangerous that way. He's litigious. <laughs> Let's just say that. He's a very litigious person. He is the litigious fella. And, uh, you know, he... He's, I don't know. I, I he's 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 like Mel Gibson to me. He's somebody that uh, I I like for his talents, but I wouldn't want to hang out with him. Uh, I I would just to just to kind of. Well, I'm see. sure he's got some great stories. Yeah, right. I bet he's got some stories that uh, you know that he's never told that would probably blow our minds. Oh, I guarantee that. Yeah. yeah, I would just hang out with him for the share stories, or God knows what else. I mean. Yeah. 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 I mean, the women's story has got to be unbelievable. And then, uh, of course, you know, all the others. Well, anyway, neither here nor there. Um, but anyway, uh, we're moving on. Um, so this movie kind of opens, and I think it established itself itself pretty well with what it is. It's it's This is essentially a sci-fi thriller mm-hmm. uh, cop movie, and it, it, but it's, it's essentially also just a good guy versus bad guy movie. Yeah, well, it does, it does follow the generic routine for this type of movie but i think that you know what kind of separates this at least from my perspective is that it's also very like homey and personable and i think it's very well paced uh overall i I think you know um and that really kind of helps those things along yeah 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 so yeah i think that so Crichton was interested in technology oh very Uh, much and he was always thinking about that kind of stuff. It was just kind of like a, eh, it was just something he was into. And uh, I think what you're getting here is you're getting some early, in my opinion, I think, I'm pretty sure it's like early drone photography. I'm not sure if they're using a drone of some sort. There's some moments, though, in this where they got to be using something because there's no way that's handheld. The the, the bullet came. Yeah, no, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if, if, if we had drones in 84. We might have. Well, it could have very well been uh, some kind of process with a steady cam. Maybe, maybe, or maybe something on the end of a pole. Maybe. Yeah, I could see them using a crane. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, that shot still holds up. I mean, it's pretty impressive. The uh, oh, I, yeah. I think it's a little cheesy, but at the same time, it's pretty impressive. I mean, this bullet goes through pipes and yep. everything, and I'm thinking, how did they pull that off? Uh, I, I still think about that when I when I I even knew going back in to watch this. I remember thinking. Oh yeah, this has got that one bullet shot that I've never been able to figure out how they pulled it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and he, like you said, he may very well have, have just kind of put attached it to like some remote control something and yeah. just shot the damn thing. You know, let it go. Yeah, run it. I got I got to mention this. This movie has a really dark, weird trivia moment, and and I saw this when I was looking at IMDb, so I don't take credit for this at all, but. Uh, Romanian dictator uh, Nikolai uh, was it Kachachu or something like that? I can't remember his name, but he was that last one of those last dictators in the world that ended up getting killed uh, d- during his trial in '89. Uh, when he was ex- he ended up being executed. He invoked uh, Tom Selleck's name and his character because this is evidently his favorite movie. <laughs> now that is a weird piece of <laughs> a weird piece of trivia for anything. That's an odd one. Yeah, <laughs> wait, wait Ceausescu. Ceausescu, yeah, Ceausescu. There you go. Sorry, 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You remember, you remember the? Uh, remember they hunted him? They hunted? They hunted him down, didn't they? Him and his wife. Oh yeah, they did. Yeah. 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 Uh, I anyway. remember because it was a there was a punchline uh, with his name. It was uh, Papi Chachescu. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So Chachescu. Yeah, that's right. I'm gonna let that one lay where Chacha- it is. Um, but anyway, that's yeah. It's, it's just weird. You do you find these things out and. It's like Bin Laden loving pornography and things like that. I mean, it's just like one of these things where you <laughs> find it, you're like, oh, hey, what's they are humans after all. Um, I think I like that Ceausescu liked uh, Runaway more than <laughs> Bin Laden like pornography. That's just whatever. Uh, anyway, uh, so some of the things that I found striking about this movie, rewatching it, camera work was one. I yes. think for the most part, it the movie keeps to its rules, which yes. I appreciated. It doesn't really kind of go too far outside of the ballpark, uh, which I think is a really nice touch. And I think Crichton did a good job with that in Looker as well, which I didn't get. Again, it's one of the few reviews that I that I I, I remember I wasn't able to do with Todd and uh, Mike Malloy, but I wasn't. Uh, no, I'm not wasn't Todd. There's Will and Mike Malloy. Sorry, Todd. I'm gonna give you uh, credit when credit isn't due for you this time. Is not due. Uh, but I liked uh, that film quite a bit too. I I, I mean. It's it's not perfect, but I think that Crichton is really good at universe building, and maybe that might be his um, his writing background. But he seemed really obsessed, in my opinion, with making sure things were, you know, within that ninety minutes, he wasn't going to stray. Mm-hmm. And even though I think he's a decent filmmaker, p- probably not a great filmmaker. Um, I think that he manages to pull off something with a few of his films. Well, he very much understands the economy of storytelling. Yes. Economy yes. of space, economy of time, economy of, of uh, yeah, character. I mean, he's a very good writer. I mean, for those who have not read his books, maybe because they seem too commercial for you and everything else. I mean, no, they're, he's, they're, a, he's a very good writer. Yeah, they're, they're, they were great books. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, and he's also, I think, an incredibly talented filmmaker, yeah, which yeah. never gets talked about. Yeah. I mean, uh, Westworld, the, you know, the, Coma, The Great Train Robbery. Those three, oh fil- those, those three films are solid. Yeah. And Looker... He's, he's never gotten credit as a yeah. filmmaker. L- Looker uh, and I can't, of, I can't think of any of his movies that aren't at least of interest. And all of them, I think, are, are really well made and really look uh, great. And this is yeah. no exception. Well, I mean, he did physical evidence with Burt Reynolds in 89. And that's late cycle Burt Reynolds. And so a lot of people didn't see it. I think it's a pretty okay Burt Reynolds film. Um, then he goes on and does... Um, the reshoots for 13th warrior i think i don't know if he had originally directed 13th warrior or not i don't think he did but don't, don't quote me on that no he didn't it was mctiernan so mctiernan originally okay shoots, yeah 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 okay mctiernan originally shoots 13th warrior but then Crichton doesn't like what's taking place and comes in does reshoots and that film's developed a cult following now over the years but um i think he was done with hollywood at that point at that point he was producing and jurassic park and made a lot of money and and then, of course, he ends up falling ill. Uh, he died kind of young, 66. He ends up falling ill and uh, passed away at 66 in uh, 2008. So, you know, he has an interesting career, though. Great writer, a pretty solid filmmaker, like Todd and I were talking about. And uh, I think all that kind of comes across here. Um, I really like the scene in this movie uh, where Selleck is, he has to go in to disarm a robot with a baby still in the house. It really ups the stakes of the movie and how dangerous these robots can be. And I like that. I like that, uh, you know, it's one man versus the machine. He's warning the newscaster. 
Um, this again, this is kind of the future. So maybe the future they would directly talk to cops before they would go in. Seems kind of silly now, but you know, back then maybe this is potentially it because we certainly were making. I mean, he certainly is making a comment about the, you know, the need for the American public to be kind of obsessed with crime. And, you know, I would see, you know, I mean, we, we do love our crime, right? We do love seeing terrible uh, things on TV. Uh, we, as a, when I say we, I mean, as a culture and not necessarily me, I don't watch the news because it just makes me depressed. But, um, when I say that, I mean, you know, I could see a time where, you know, cops can almost be like professional wrestlers saying, well, here's what I'm going to do. Tony Schiavone, I'm going to walk in here and I'm going to take this robot out, brother. You know, I'm going to see that murder Saturday <laughs> night in San Bernardino. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you, you could see where us as a culture would maybe be obsessed with something like that. And I think he's well, making think, a I brief that, comment I on that. That's, this all stems. I a hundred percent agree with what you're saying. Um, and that's one of the things that I really kind of love about this movie. But I also think that, you know, this kind of stems from Crichton's uh, love of technology to begin with, mm-hmm. because he, he's very much in that same way uh, talking about how, you know, uh, the, this increase in technology as it moves in on, you know, like our lives. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't think that he quite predicted that the intrusion, you know, this technological intrusion would be in, in the, the mundane form of phones. No. Um, that, you know, it has become, but I think the point remains essentially the same. And I think that the, the media, uh, he certainly predicted that there's this sort of, um, you know, intrusive, almost you know, pervasive twenty-four hour sort of news, right. uh, news feed need uh, for the, you know the junkies who you know are so uh, entrenched in, in you know technology, living their lives for them that you know this is a, this is all that they get now. Right, right. Uh, and I think that's very much what he what he's what he's going with uh, in uh, in yeah. certain ways in here. Yeah, he's certainly making comments here. I mean, there's certain. There's, oh, yeah, there's, yeah. there's political stuff going on here. But the great thing is, is he wraps it up in an entertainment. Yes, and a very entertaining, yes. simple, like I said, black versus white, uh, good, uh, you know, white hat versus black hat, uh, yeah, cop yeah, yeah. film, and some of my appreciation of this movie still stems from the fact that this is just a really kind of solid cop movie. Well, and I think that, I think that that's kind of why this one doesn't get held in much regard uh, in Crichton's sort of filmography because mm-hmm. it's because he has that generic cop versus bad guy premise that yeah. he's working off of here. Yeah. Uh, but for me, that work, it works in spades. Yeah, the movie looks great. I mean, it still oh, it looks. It still it still really pops. I mean, the cinematography and and everything from uh, John Alonzo. Yeah. yeah the yeah. music from Jerry Goldsmith is spot on. Yep. I mean, yep. a lot of the stuff that's going on here. I mean, it really it 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 looks like a movie. You know, outside of the special effects and obviously the computers and stuff that you see here, it looks like a movie that was shot recently i mean it doesn't look like a film that was made in 1984 it looks really nice yeah yes it does and i gotta say it 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 really popped i mean i watched it on amazon prime the hd print they have on there when the i think it was universal i can't remember it came up it looked kind of muddy and i was like oh man it's not gonna look great but then when the movie came on i was like whoa this movie looks nice yeah, and yeah. Uh, it still looks nice. Uh, it does. I gotta say, Tom Selleck in this movie, he's only about thirty-five years old, but he already looks like he's about fifty-five. Yes. Well, uh, it's the mustache. Yeah, I don't remember if he was a smoker or not back in the day. Sometimes that you know will age you a little quicker. Um, but you know, sometimes people just naturally look. You know, some actors just look forty-five when they're twenty-five, and then right. when they're eighty-five, they still look forty-five. It just 
it is what it is. But again, Selleck, they're trying to make him a little bit of a star here. As Todd mentioned, uh, Terminal Island, which was a low budget uh, film that he was in. He with had no tried, mustache, by the way. Yeah, he had worked with uh, um, Crichton before in Coma, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he was briefly in that. But he did a ton of television in the uh, 70s and was always this kind of up-and-comer type actor. He was in uh, one of the first things I remember seeing him in was the uh, interpretation of Myra Breckenridge. He plays uh, one of the studs in that uh, insanity that is Myra Breckenridge. What a fucked up film that is. It's a movie. It's something. Um, but that's one of the first things I saw him in. Uh, and then, of course, I remember him in Daughters of Satan. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was one of his early ones, too. And then, of course, we've uh, we've talked reviewed Terminal Island on the show before. But he's popped up in things over the years. Uh, he's actually in a TV movie called Superdome, which I thought about picking for this show. But I just haven't. I got the Blu-ray I got from Kino, but um, was thinking about doing it at some point. Um, but he in the 80s, he gets Magnum P.I., Right? When, no, he didn't get Magnum P.I. yet, I don't think. Magnum P.I. hits in 19, yeah, 1980. Okay, so it hits in 1980. My mom and dad loved Magnum P.I. <laughs> My God, did they love that show. And uh, it was one of those pop culture moments, right? It was one of those shows. Yes. Guy in Hawaii, Hawaiian shirts, Ferrari, uh, funny uh, sidekick butler. It was, it was just one of those shows. And... So they decide they're going to make him try to make him a movie star. Um, now he tries out infamously. He tried out for the Indiana Jones role and almost got it. Mm-hmm. And that would have obviously changed his career completely. Uh, more than likely. Um, I think he would have been fine as Indiana Jones. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, obviously, Harrison uh, I Ford think is, he would have been okay. Yeah. Um, I don't think he would have been particularly a standout no. or anything like that, but he would have been uh, suitable, I guess. Yeah. He wouldn't have been as great as Harrison Ford is. As Indiana True. Jones, but I think he would have been fine because I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is just such a well-made film. I think he wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have mattered if who was Indiana Jones. I think Spielberg made Indiana Jones a great character and yeah. Lucas as well. So, you know, it just so happens that they got lucky enough to have Harrison Ford who has this kind of natural charisma. Again, that's a gentleman I probably would not want to hang out with in real life, but because he seems like a bit of a curmudgeon and a shithead. But anyway. <laughs> But then they try again. They try to make him a star, so he gets High Road to China. See if you remember some of these films: High Road to China, Oh yeah, Lassiter, which we talked about, Runaway, yep. uh, Three Men and a Baby, which was a big hit, huge hit. Oh, that one I always forget about. Yeah, uh, was, that was a huge hit. Him and uh, Steve Gutenberg and uh, Ted Danson, I believe. Yes. Yep. So big hit there, and then he tries to get into these kind of different type movies. He does Her Alibi, which is actually not a bad film. Uh, An Innocent Man, which is not a bad film as well. Quickly Down Under, I think, is a totally underrated Western. I recommend people check that out. It's a it's a pretty solid Western. Australian Western, pretty good. And he's pretty good in it. And then he does Three Men and a Little Lady, uh, which is a sequel. Makes a little bit of money, not nearly as big. But then his movie career after that is pretty much hit or miss. It's comedies he's trying to do. They really just can't find anything for him. And then he bends up back on TV, basically, with Friends and Boston Legal. And I think he's had a hell of a run with, uh, what is it, Blue Bloods? Is that what that show's yes. called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, my father-in-law fucking loves that show. So <laughs> I think he's become more synonymous as a TV actor than a film actor, which is not a bad thing. I don't, you know, again, I don't think TV's the the uh, 
dirty word that people think it is. So I, I, I like Tom Selleck. I'm just going to say that. I, I, I like him too. And I Quite think he's bit. a really good leading man in this movie. Um, I like High Road to China and I like Lassiter. I think those one, two, threes right there. I think those three films are really good. I think he's at his most charismatic and interesting and quickly down under. But uh, that film is... It, it it has some problems, but I, I like it quite a bit. Of course, I'm a huge fan of Laura San Giacomo. Oh, my God. Am I a huge fan of Laura San Giacomo? <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. But uh, without get, sounding like a pervert, which I tend Too to late. do every week. Yes. Uh, anyway, back to the movie. So we get some uh, nice uh, lighting setups and a scene where he goes back into the, the house. I really like that scene. It's well done. Um, we get the bullet tech, which is basically these are like heat-seeking missiles. These bullets are insane. Yes. Here's something I want to bring up about this movie. So at one point, a Cynthia Rhodes character gets shot in the arm, and she gets shot with one of these heat-seeking bullets that blow up on impact. But this one doesn't. This one lodges into her arm, and it doesn't blow up. So they're going to send a robot in to do it, and uh, Tom Selleck doesn't like it because these robots are butchers, and they'll tear her up and probably kill her and all this kind of stuff. So he's going to do it himself. And what that turns into is that turns into the, I have to believe the sex scene that Richard Donner would kind of ape by the time he gets to lethal weapon is it three where they do the scar scene. Uh, that was, two. or was that two? Yeah. I can't remember which one it was. No, that was three. Yeah. Okay. Cause Renee Russo shows up in three. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that here. This is definitely, it's a little bit more serious in this, but this is definitely the Cynthia Rose, Tom Selleck sex scene. <laughs> Yes, yes. She is certainly showing her O face as she is getting uh. this bullet removed. <laughs> and they're they're making small talk and you know it's all tough, it's soft and quiet. Sweat. Oh man, this that's a wet scene. Let's just say that. <laughs> Find out that Tom Selleck is a squirter. Anyway. <laughs> he's sweating pastrami all over the place. <laughs> that's the flings uh, too. I I like I think what my opinion of this movie is really stems from the fact that how much I like practical effects. We talk about this often on the show. Practical effects and the simplicity of storytelling here. They don't give us a whole lot about the Luther character. He's just a bad guy. Yes. He wants money and he looks bad and he is bad. And that's all. I don't need anything more than that. And Tom Selleck's character is a single dad whose uh, wife has died in an accident of some sort. Or maybe she was sick. I can't remember. He's kind of trying to get back on the road to recovery. He seems to work better with robots because he seems to have trouble with people. Yep. Um, it's a very simple kind of psychic link. Not psychic, but you know what I mean. It's a mental yeah. link that you kind of put together in the movie. Because he never really says he doesn't like working with people. You just realize well, that he's he's removed himself from people. Yeah, well, I I think that he's the, kind of the key here is that you know Selleck is human enough because he doesn't he, he doesn't like heights, right? Yes, and he clearly has you know things on his mind and in his past that you know make him a little prickly, but is most especially guilt, uh, which is you know it's one of the great hero character motivations. And I think that you know, I think that Selleck kind of has that easy charm to make us like him and feel for him, even when he's being a bit of a dick. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. like look at it, and that's where you know where, where I'm getting to with what you were saying about how um you know he doesn't really like to work with with people it, that's his relationship with Lois mm-hmm, you know he seems he seems way more comfortable with Lois than with other people outside of his family right 
so we we kind of we kind of sort of feel bad when the inevitable happens to the lowest character then mm-hmm. uh, but we also you know completely understand uh you know we get where the the Sela character is coming from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think what, uh, what i think that links us into him so. yeah I, I i like so to me i don't know what the film is that inspired so many of the action films we ended up liking in the 80s but i gotta believe this is a pivotal one uh this uh, this is before lethal weapon right this is before yeah. lethal weapon this is before die hard die hard yeah and there's some similarities there between this and Die Hard. Some, not 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 yeah, much, but yeah. some. But I don't recall. I mean, this feels like an '80s cop film, and I'm trying to think how many '80s cops films there are before this film. <laughs> and I, I'm having a hard time. I'm kind of drawing a blank. Yeah, I'm sure there is some. Maybe Beverly Hills Cop. Well, that's a good. That's a good one. Uh, that's. I think that's the same year. I think it's eighty four, it right? Is. I think it is. So, and and that even though it's not a year earlier, yeah, I don't have a. a I do like the Beverly Hills Cop. I don't have a huge love for that film, but I do like it. Uh, but I certainly recognize its influence on eighty cinema is high. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That and in and in Beverly Hills Cop two in another way because it's a Tony Scott movie. So it's a you know it's definitely it, those those influences are there for what the eighties become. But I wonder if you know. If if Crichton had done in some ways, and again I don't know this for a fact, I, I didn't do enough research to know if this isn't in some ways like Gene Simmons says, you got the templates. If this is not the template for what would become of the '80s action movie in some way, now we know Die Hard becomes the template after it comes out for quite some time. Right. Uh, but this one definitely feels that way. Wanted Dead or Alive is 1985, I think. 86? It might be 86. 86, I want to say. So these movies are coming. No, 85. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. these movies are coming along. It's right in there. 84, 85, 86. These movies are coming along. And these are the movies that, you know, we, I mean, these are our formative years, right? Me and you are 11 years old when this oh, hits. Yeah. Uh, you Like my son, these are the movies we want to see. Um because he's going through that right now. He's like, Dad, can I see this? And I'm like, yeah, yeah let me let me, yeah. let me let me check it out. Well, you had, yeah, yeah. as far as cop movies go, yeah, uh, this. But then you had, on the opposite end, uh, like the bit more of the, the hardcore action, you had Terminator, Commando, yeah. Uh, yeah. First Blood. Yeah. Yeah, so those those movies are definitely there, too. What is Commando? Is Commando 86? 84. 84. No, 85, because it would have been after Terminator. Yeah, yeah. We sure it's not eighty. It's not eighty-seven, is it? Commando? No, maybe not. No. That, that does seem late. No, that's way too late. You might be right. I think. I think you're right. I think it is eighty-five. Eighty-five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah, eighty-five. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting conversation because certainly at some point in time the template hits, and we always kind of give credit to the template in some ways to Schwarzenegger, Stallone, uh, those guys, and some of those directors, yeah. McTiernan. Uh, Cameron and stuff like that. But I think Michael Crichton had a lot to do with it. Uh, looking back on it. Uh, Cause I feel like this film certainly has inspired many films after it. Oh, and, yeah, and in yeah. some ways I, uh, like you brought up, which I didn't even think of, but Martin Brest as well with Beverly Hills cop. I mean, I think that is, that is a very important template as well. Cause that, that has the nice added mix of fish out of water to it. Yes. Yes. You know, bringing yes. the Detroit cop to, to Los Angeles. So that has that extra element. Um, but man, I, I gotta say, rewatching this movie, I had a lot of fun. I, I think this movie is underrated. I absolutely think it's underrated, and it really kind of amazes me just how underrated it is because yeah. people, you never, ever 
hear people talk about Runaway when they talk about yes. action movies. Yeah. It's amazing to me how, I mean, I've known people over the years who love this movie. Um, well, I think I think the part of that is because when people think action movies and they, when they think cop movies, they think of testosterone, and this movie is not that. No, it is it is up to a point. I mean, it has those elements in it, but it's not amplified or you know shredded like uh, it was in some of the the other movies of this uh, particular genre. Well, it's not. It does have the the respect relationship between Ramsey and Luther a little bit, and a little bit. but. But it's not like the Stallone or the Schwarzenegger films where it would sometimes become, for lack of a better word, almost homoerotic. Right. Uh, right, right. Which was also – that that's also one of my favorite elements of those films. Is, well, but a lot of that, that also comes out of – I think that also comes out of you know the, the emphasis on – Physique. The bodies. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Physiques, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. But, but, but what I'm saying is that's one of the things I love about that genre. I love that it became about these greasy, sweaty – uh, oily sure. men uh, sure. rubbing up against each other. I, I love yeah. that uh, because I. Well, you're also a wrestling fan. Yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> but to me, that was the dynamic I loved. I mean, they they hated each other so much that they loved each other. Like yes, they yeah. like yeah. they were going to get it on. And again, I've said this over the years, and I've often saved this for a review at some point in time. But if you watch the climax to Commando, if you watch that. And and you just have the sound on, and you don't have you're not watching the visuals. That is a sex scene between <laughs> Bennett and the the Schwarzenegger character. He's like, "Oh, it feels good, John. Yeah, feels good, John. <laughs> you like it, John? Oh yeah, <laughs> John. It's a great moment, John Matrix. Uh, and then of course it finishes with being impelled on a pipe. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. But either way. Uh, I love that. I love the aspects of the film that way. This film, I think, what makes it stand out to me and what makes it hold up is it gives you just enough character development, just enough to make you care about the Tom Selleck character, the Cynthia Rhodes character, even though I think at one point they do kind of wash their hands of her. Yeah. Uh, she yeah. kind of disappears from the movie altogether. The little boy and 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 just gives you enough of the Luther character to care about his bad guy motives and the fact that he's always looking at the camera like he's in a Stanley Kubrick movie, which is the way Gene Simmons <laughs> looks at every camera. But I, I think it works. Uh, I really do. And I think this movie is, honestly, it's a standout of 80s action movies, if you want to call it an 80s action movie. It's kind of a standout in a way, and a film that, honestly, just... I, I'm glad you picked it, because I think it gets overlooked all the time. I really do. I think it's... A really solid movie. And I don't know if it's my favorite Michael Crichton film. That might still be Westworld, uh, which I love. Um, ah, man, it'd be hard for me to say, but it's certainly up there in the conversation. I mean, he only directed eight or nine films, but this is one of his best ones. I mean, it, it, it's a really, really good movie. That's what I'll say. I'll kick it over to you. Nice. Okay, so I'm probably going to just kind of embellish on some of your stuff here and maybe even repeat some. Uh, but I tried to cross out everything that we kind of are crossing over on. But um, so I think the Crichton is very, very careful, I think, to present us with not only uh, the possible misuses or issues associated with the growth of technology, but uh, in I think in people's relationships to it. Um, so, you know, the Ramsey character, he, he understands technology and he's kind of, you know, all business in that regard. Uh, but I think Crichton has shots, uh, especially in the uh, the opening credits, like the the circuit board reflected in uh, in his glasses. 
uh, that, you know, I think very specifically links the two together. So rather than simply being about how technology is bad, uh, I think this movie is about how technology is a tool like any other and has to be understood to be uh, to be dealt with. And then, you know, of course, you know, the Gene Simmons character is the the opposite side of that. Um, the interesting thing here is that, you know, technology in this movie only becomes bad when the desires of evil people kind of make it bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so there's, there's still the struggle between good and evil in the story. Uh, it's just through this technological lens. And I think that that's what, what Crichton brings to the, yeah. uh, the party. So to well, speak. it's, it's the age old question, right? I mean, you, you make tobacco, you sell tobacco, you know, it's bad for people, but it doesn't necessarily mean people have to smoke it. Exactly. Uh, I mean, yeah. And, uh, you know, this, uh, this, technological lens i mean it's not the same kind of good and evil struggle through that as we would get in something like the matrix uh because we're not in like another reality uh and that kind of keeps it interesting for me um do, 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 let's see uh okay so yeah we, we do get the, the the these really brilliant kind of touches that uh that Crichton throws in here like the smart bullets and the spider assassins and there's even there's even a really pretty novel twist on the car chase that I don't think we'd uh, seen quite like this before yeah yeah uh, and it works yeah it does it, it does it, I didn't bring never, that up I love that scene really, they also never really address the, the this casual disregard for public safety <laughs> uh, that movies like this always seem to have yeah. yes um, yes they do <laughs> but it, it's really inventive stuff uh, but it's believably inventive and I like how Crichton makes it all much more believable by putting in moments where characters will kind of like, they'll kind of shop talk about like a specific model of robot that might be obsolete or this is the new model of, or that kind of, it's just really casual stuff. And it just kind of like, it kind of brings you into this world that he's creating. And like you said, he's a really great world builder. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's how he does it. And that's sort of, uh, and that's in the same sort of way that uh, guys like Spielberg or Altman uh, will use overlapping dialogue. Uh, and these sort of casual conversations that are going on and in, interweaving through the main dialogue that kind of brings us in. Uh, I think that's very slick filmmaking. Uh, it's not something you see a whole lot of, I think, these days. Right. Um, but it is something that I very, very, very much appreciate. Um, Simmons does, uh, you know, this really nice job as his usual sort of reptilian uh, self. Um, though he does have certain human moments here and there. Uh, like we know that he drinks his coffee black, as all sane people do. Um, <laughs> but he's uh, he's completely amoral. Uh, he's not what we think of when we think of mad scientists in movies. No. Uh, and I like that about him. I do too. Um, I like that, uh, you know, I think that the uh, Cynthia Rhodes, I think she does a pretty good job in a limited role. I mean, like you said, they kind of do abandon her. She's definitely capable and smart yeah. uh, as a character, but she's essentially the damsel uh, by the by the finale of the movie. Yeah, she starts out as a strong, kind of naive character, but then um, they they really do just abandon her, which is kind of a shame because she's kind of, she's fun in the movie. Yeah. But, yeah. Every, but every character in this movie has an interesting arc. That's what's interesting, I think, about it. Uh, Chris, Kirstie Alley, that character's a throwaway character, but they give her a, they give her character an arc. Well, they do, and we get a little bit of shading uh, while they're checking her for bugs. Yeah, uh, you know, because she's got like uh, oh, that's you know, a, scars on her back, and all that's that. a sexy scene, by the way. It is, um, but I find it interesting that they they contrast uh, Cynthia Rhodes against Kirstie Allen in almost every way. So one's blonde, one's brunette, one's good, and the other's maybe not bad, uh, but certainly dirty and venal. Like one is, one is the girl next door, while the other is like the girl next to the men's room in the yeah. dive bar. Yeah, one's kind of uh, one's blue collar, one's corporate. You can yeah 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, you get G.W. Bailey showing up here, and you get some uh, some nice, quick, uh, sardonically humorous moments yeah. uh, as the uh, the police chief. For those who don't know uh, who he is, he would go on to be uh, was it Sergeant Harris? Sergeant and, Harris, yeah, and police academy. In, uh, police academy, yeah. 
Yeah. Which would, uh, make, which would make his career, right? Because, I mean, that's what everybody knows him as. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And uh, and then in, you know, uh, one of the most interesting uh, and never commented on scenes, I think, um, and we, I, I don't even think that you brought this up, is that the cops use a psychic uh, to get a reading on Luther. Uh, and you can see that, well, uh, that Ramsey. That scene is, out of all the scenes in the movie, that one's kind of weird to me. Well, it's it's weird, but it goes it goes back to this sort of odd world building and this futurism that that Crichton's throwing it, this like casual futurism that that, mm. that Crichton's doing here because yeah. you can see that you know Ramsey he, he doesn't particularly buy this bullshit, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. But at the same time, uh, the psychic is not wrong, and she does have a certain amount of insight that you know surprises even the Ramsey character, being you know a devotee. Uh, of science over mysticism and you know while i i, I do find this angle intriguing i'm also kind of glad that there wasn't anything else done with it uh because it, it gives like, like some some nuance into this world uh that we might not have had with only man versus like technology aspects but at the same time it's just it's really odd it, but it's just it, it is it, but it it's it, it, it's just I don't know how else to put it. It just gives a nice little shading, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to this uh, to this There's world that he's two things in. in this movie that perplex me to this day: that scene and uh, where they put the reset button on the elevator. <laughs> yeah, right, dude. The, I'm the telling best you, best fucking spot it could possibly be. In. The best spot for the movie itself for it to yes. possibly be. Well, I mean, for yeah, a character I mean, that's scared of heights. I mean, it yeah, makes exactly. I don't yeah, know exactly. if it makes any sense for that reset button to be there. Maybe it does, and I didn't think it through very much. But man, <laughs> well, but you, you got to remember. You got, but I think that that leads into you know this uh, this idea that the the finale of the movie is essentially set up like a video game. It is, uh, or at least it put me in mind of the, you know the classic Donkey Kong to some degree. Yeah, no, no, I, and and Crichton enjoyed video games. So I mean, again, sure. I, I I I don't know. I don't get me wrong. I, the the psychic stuff is fine. I think what now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, I think the psychic stuff is there also because you you said that thing about Selick not really being into it. It kind of also gets that that, that that logical side of Selick, which is, you know, computer. I like computers and robots because we can program them to do what I want. Whereas right. psychics yeah, yeah, yeah. are unpredictable because people are unpredictable. Yes. And obviously, Selick has some OCD or control issues. Yes. Well, yeah, and uh, yeah, and people's memories are less reliable than a computer's memory. Sure. Uh, that kind of thing, that Mandela yeah. sort of thing. So that's certainly there, and I appreciate that more now in hindsight, kind of thinking about it. But I still, yeah. I, I still yeah. can't get behind the reset button. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, although you know, it does. I mean, like you said, I mean, it works well enough for tying you know all of the the film strings together, given Ramsey, oh, yeah. you know, an additional hurdle of having overcome the fear yeah. of heights and all that. No, it's totally uh, there for that reason. Yes. Oh, a hundred percent. Uh, and then, of course, the finale also gives the villain some poetic justice. So it's all it's all very nicely orchestrated, very tightly done. Very well done. Uh, yes. I mean, Crichton, Crichton believes in uh, tying up all of his loose ends, and he a hundred percent does that here. Yeah. Um, and I always I always love the uh, the effect of the uh, the spider needles that are loaded with acid, <laughs> um, because it just looks so gross. Yeah. Like when they fucking when they squirt acid yeah. on people and they just yeah. you know they make some fucking skin go black and all this shit. It's uh, weir- weirdly sexual too in some weird way. Yeah, right. Yes. So these- there's yeah. There's some more uh, some more uh, computer sex. For you. Could be the just the penetration aspect of it, but maybe there's a slight hesitation with the spiders that I find interesting before they stick the needle in. 
yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but that's pretty much all that I have, man. Yeah, I've I've, I've always liked this movie. Yeah. Um, and I still do to this day. I think it it moves along fast. It's it's you know it, like every little piece of it. There's no uh, wasted uh, wasted time on this. Yeah. No wasted. Yeah. No waste at all. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's really good. Yeah. It jumps in. It goes, and it, it satisfies, and it's uh, you know it does all the things that it needs to do. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, my make or break for this would probably be, I, I really like that house rescue scene. I like that scene. It establishes our our hero as a true hero. Uh, again, it's weird he's wearing chain mail, but uh, they, you know what? It is what it well, is. I think, they, I think they do explain that. Yeah. Something with like static electricity or something. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I, maybe I did, didn't hear that part, but I, I, I do like that way that outfit looks with the blue Velcro pads on it as well. It's kind of a nice yeah. futuristic it feels like, you know, at that point in time that that's how we would kind of see the future a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. My MVT for this thing, I'm going to go Crichton because I think he really handles this uh, movie well. And I'll, I'll go score on this. I'll tell you what. I've always liked this movie. I love this movie now. <laughs> this movie is aged like fine wine for me. Uh, I hadn't seen it in, God, it's been it's been ages. I used to watch it on cable quite a bit. Um, and people used to always be into Highlander, but I always thought Runaway was better than Highlander, and I still think it is. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm going to go 8.5. I love oh, this movie, man. shit. Yeah. I did not see that one coming. I think it's lean, mean, fighting machine, man. I think it's 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 it doesn't... There's not a lot of wasted time here. No, there really isn't. And the movie moves along at a really, really nice pace. I never was bored. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was enraptured by this thing on a rewatch and yeah, yeah. It, it's great I, somebody needs to get a i need a 4k of this that's what yeah, i need right? this thing is yeah this thing is 100 percent. i agree with you this is the steak and the sizzle yes um so make or break i'm gonna go with the bullet removal scene mm. uh i think that you know uh this really kind of it clarifies the threat it makes it personal uh and it strength uh, strengthens the uh the character's you know bond uh, and it, I think that it really reinforces the theme of technology in people's lives, as denoted not only by the bullet, but uh, by the uh, the remote camera uh, that the TV station is placed in the room, which you know we kind of talked about a little bit before. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that Crichton shows the actual removal of the bullet in a very novel way as well, because yes. he doesn't actually show like any close-ups or anything like that. It's not bloody. It's not invasive. It's not meat that we're watching. We're watching it through uh, a television monitor. Right. Um, and so, you know, that just kind of amplifies everything uh, as well. MVT, yeah, I'm going to go uh, with Crichton. You know, I, as much as I do love Westworld uh, and, you know, the Great Train Robbery, um, and Christ, I can't remember my what my opinion of Looker is at all uh, because I, it's been probably since it came out that I've seen it. Uh, it's a bit more wacky than this, but it's it's pretty I, good. I believe it. Uh, but this, this may very well be my favorite of his movies. I think that it shows the man... Uh, in about as much control of his craft as he he could be and as he ever would be, uh, and score for me, you know, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I I adore the shit out of this thing as well. Um, I was going, uh, I was going to come in at around seven five, but you know what? After talking with you, I'm going eight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I uh, I fucking love Runaway. Yeah. Uh, it's great. I, I love it even more after after watching it for the show. So I love it even more after finding out Louis Cardinia covered it in the eighties again. I right? forgot about it, man. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> I've had a great uh, moment of nostalgia this morning. I'm just you know <laughs> really got me wired. 
Nice. Wired for sound, baby. Yeah, man. No, but it uh, it is it is a really good movie. And uh, for those who have never seen it, please check it out. I would recommend yes, it. It is to on anybody. Amazon Prime. Yep. Uh, yeah. And for those who haven't seen it in a while, like me, uh, I would recommend you go back and check it out. Yes. Really solid science fiction thriller. Really, really, really solid. All right. Uh, that's a big show for this week. We hope you have enjoyed. Um, what are we doing next week, Todd? We are doing uh, Scarlet Street from 1945. Going to get a little Edward G. back on the show, a little Fritz Lang. Nice. A uh, little uh, kind of noir thriller going on there. Eh, it's definitely noir. Yeah, it's noir. Noir-esque. Yeah, I'd say it's noir. I think I, there is some kind of debate online I've noticed about if this is oh, noir is or not. Well, there has been in the past. Uh, well, I think that's more of uh, because of the. Uh, well, we'll get into. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get, get into it. I think anytime there's decision making of the sort that's in the movie like that, it's noir. <laughs> we'll talk right, about that right, next week, right. though. And I am picking uh, an Arrow video release, uh, one that I've been wanting to cover for some time, a little underseen uh, film uh, that deals with some. Uh, strange topics uh, <laughs> that Todd uh, mentioned to me, but we'll talk about it more next week. But uh, uh, toy, yeah. Toys Are Not For Children uh, from 1972, directed by Stanley H. Braslov, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a name you hear a lot. But this is a little independent. <laughs> Forever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a little independent, uh, uh, underseen film, uh, but probably for a reason. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> We'll get into that next week. <laughs> You're Todd. He's he's really selling it over there. <laughs> he's really selling it. Uh, we thank everybody for listening. As always, uh, we hope you have a, a wonderful, wonderful week and whatever you're doing. Uh, check me out again over at the Not A Bomb Watches podcast if you get a chance. And uh, I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com